Cork, there is no better place. It's time to talk. The only way to get into the Cork is down to the the Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. I just love Cork people. Conversation that matters. Seven minutes past nine. Good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. This is Mick Mulcahy. And with so many uh, demands, I imagine, on his time today, I am pleased to have an early opportunity to speak to the long-standing legal representative of Ian Bailey, Frank Buttermore. Good morning, Frank. Morning, Mick. Uh, busy times here. I guess you're in demand all over the country. Can I ask you uh, how you heard the news yesterday and what was your initial feelings? I, I'll, you know, it's going to be shock, it's going to be sadness, of course, but how did you hear about it? Uh, I got a text from uh, somebody whom I know uh, to ask me if I had heard anything about Ian's situation, uh, which at that time was that he had apparently had an attack on the street down in Bantry, so I didn't know at that stage that it was uh, uh, you know, a lead-up to his death. So I texted back to find out what the situation was, and I then got another text from another connection down that neck of the woods who told me that he had died. One text followed the other, I suppose, about, about five minutes. And I really was ah, very upset to hear about it. You know, I knew Ian for 27 years. I knew he was very unwell, by the way. And I, you know, just, uh, I, how did I feel about it? I was just very sad. Uh, you know, life ruined by, you know, circumstances. And I, uh, I, I just was, you know, I mean, having, having, you know, been connected with him for all those years, I'd have to say that there's a bit of a vacuum. Yes, in, you know, end of an uh, era, really. Ah, for sure, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, an extraordinary state of affairs. And I had, you know, my own, <laughs> you know, supporting role, as it were, in relation to the whole tragedy, you know, from what happened to that unfortunate lady, Madame Toscan de Plantier, Ian's wrongful association with it. So, yeah, end of an era, Mick. Yeah, I heard in your very compelling interview with Neil about two years ago, you kind of kicked off the interview by saying, from the moment I met him, I knew he didn't do it. Yeah, that's always been my position. Uh, that was like an intuitive thing where we all knew about that shocking and tragic event back in 96 stroke 97. We all knew, I suppose, then that Ian Bailey was, you know, somehow or other the suspect in relation to it. He came into my office in March 97 to see if I would act for him if he ever were to be prosecuted, bearing in mind that he had been arrested about uh, maybe four or five weeks previously. I had done some a couple of cases of some prominence around that time or leading up to it, so that's why I think he came in. I listened to, you know, what he had to say at that time for uh, just maybe an hour, an hour and a half or something, just, you know, engaging in conversation. And uh, I suppose intuitively that was my view. Mm. I mean, there has to be a reason and motivation in something for somebody to commit such a crime and other things that you'd know, you know, going on in my own job and so on. And my, I hope I'm right that my belief, you know, was was kind of uh, strengthened and I suppose affirmed in you know subsequent times by virtue of things that I managed to do or you know, we did, you know, to represent him and acquiring information, for example, such as the contact that I got from Marie Farrell, confirming that you know what she had said to the police and what she had said in the witness box, you know, those things weren't true and. You know, dealing with the extradition case where we acquired devastating information which damned the police inquiry and so on. 
So yeah, absolutely. Uh, I knew he wasn't involved in it. There was no reason for him to be involved. The whole thing was, quite frankly, in my view, a concoction to create the concept that he had culpability because that suited a particular agenda. So yeah, that was my view, and it remains my view. So it's it's almost as if the Guardian. This has been the subject of a Netflix series, documentary, books, podcasts, thousands of articles, I suppose. But uh, many of them would give the impression that uh, the Guardian felt they had their man, and uh, possibly gathered evidence around that fact, rather than the traditional policing method of uh, letting the evidence lead to the uh, the culprit. You got it in one, Nick. That's exactly what happened. It's uh, generate the evidence around the suspect instead of letting the evidence create the suspicion in a more correct fashion. The, the, the problem, I suppose, was sort of twofold. Number one, the uh, starting off with the prominence of the citizen of France who was killed, a person of consequence in that jurisdiction. Then, number two, the need in this jurisdiction to identify a suspect so that, you know, a prosecution could be mounted. And people should remember that all the police ever wanted in Ireland was a prosecution. The outcome would take care of itself. All they wanted was Ian Bailey to be prosecuted. Were he to have been prosecuted, he would have been placed into custody. He would have been waiting for, give or take, a year for his trial. Other events outside of his control would have happened. And the circumstances then would be that the jury, because of association, etc., would have rushed to the conclusion it must be him because he's that guy who has been portrayed in the media. And may I say, he didn't do a great job himself at that time. So, yeah, there would have been the outcome that was desired, but the prosecution of what was required by the guards. Yeah, there's no doubting that he was a complex character. And as you say, sometimes courted the, uh, the media, often reveled in the spotlight, or appeared to at least, uh, that he had around himself. And, you know, as the chief suspect, I know he was imprisoned in, in this country, you you would say, uh, because of the, uh, the, the French extradition requests and that. Um, how... How much of that complexity did you see in him? Well, I suppose I had nothing to compare because I did not know him before he came in in 1997. So I do not know what he was like before, you know, he became ensnared in this particular problem. From the time onwards when I did know him, that's the time when the damage was done to him or the damage had begun to be done. So I found him to be initially somewhat withdrawn, vulnerable, uh, you know, things of that kind. But then I found him somewhat frustratingly uh, too ready and willing to talk to anybody who might listen to him in relation to his protestations of innocence, leading to further sort of, you know, views that he was unable to stop talking about the case, almost as if he was a self-promoter. And I could understand that people would form that view but equally, then, the, the reason he was doing this, it seems to me, was the only way he knew to react to what was being done to him. So it was a reactive sort of a situation. But I did often say to him that there's a fine line between reaction and proactivity in terms of continuously sort of, you know, talking about this thing to the point where I used to become a little bit, you know, 
uh, <laughs> angry, maybe that's too yeah. strong, but I, I used to become frustrated, certainly, at his inability just to, to leave it out and you know, let somebody else do the talking for him. As a as a highly educated man, Frank, who often has to to measure people and be measured in what you do and say, uh, sort of stoic in a way. Did, did some of his I won't, maybe antics is is, this, is a stronger word, but did some of his forays into social media and uh, and the press upset you? Yeah, they did. Actually, I would say, yeah. I mean, you know, if, 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 at least at the end of the day, Mick, if you have if you have a dog, why do the barking yourself? You know, I mean, I, I we used to have this arrangement where I would maybe when, when something was required to be answered and something to do with the case, and my God, it went on over years and years. So I used to take on the task of maybe articulating the Ian Bailey position, and then maybe however bad or good I did, I don't know. But then I'd get the Ian contribution to the arrangement, and I would be thinking, well, my God, what's the point of some of this stuff? So yeah, it was I suppose frustrating. I would talk to him and say, "Look, Ian, who's doing the talking here?" <laughs> you know, we would yeah. have discussions of that kind. But I always understood, in a sense, from his subjective kind of perspective, why it was that he was doing that because it was just a reaction that he couldn't maybe control. You got to remember the damage that was done to him. And let's assume his innocence because that's our system. The reality is there was no evidence, but he was associated with the crime. His life was destroyed. His public persona was fundamentally damaged. And this was a public method by which he sort of chose, I think, to react, mm-hmm. sometimes excessively, I agree, to the circumstances in which he found himself. So, sort of eccentric bohemian. In, in the end, though, Frank, it seems as though he had little or no friends at the end and was shunned by most people in West Cork. Uh, he, he, he had more people believing he was the culprit than, than uh, he wasn't, uh, probably... Do you? No, I would disagree with that. Actually, Mick, if I might interrupt you, I would disagree with that. Actually, quite fundamentally, that would have been a, the applicable situation. No question or doubt about it. I think until about the mid two thousands, then all this stuff began to come through about the real situation, Marie Farrell. You know, questionable practices in terms of evidence generation. So a whole swathe of people swung from he did it to he didn't do it, and that was very actually reassuring to him in latter years. And it made some elements of his life a little bit easier. So I disagree with you where, you know, the great majority or something along those lines continued to think that he had done it. No doubt a lot of people did, and one understands that. I don't accept it, but I understand it. Not as not as dramatically, numerically as you might think. Okay. Uh, in 2008, Sophie Tuscanda Plantia's body was exhumed. New, new evidence was sought. Ian Bailey had previously been charged twice. Uh, sorry, been arrested twice without any charge. How can a man who's never been charged for this brutal murder uh, undergo 27 years of this, uh, essentially a prisoner in his own country? I I truly have no idea. I mean, what actually happened in 2008 was that the French who had been monitoring our criminal justice system (laughs) in a very interesting way in the background decided that they would seek what's called mutual assistance to ask the Irish state to supply the Irish police file. Why was that given, Frank? It was a political decision uh, by, by the Minister for Justice at the time, where the Minister for Justice would have had a discretion not to give the file. But, you know, France is France, and I say we had decided that we weren't going to prosecute him. A clear, definitive decision was made by the DPP in about 2008 for specific reasons that there wasn't going to be a charge. France came knocking. 
We agreed to give the file. The file was given over. The European arrest warrant was generated. That warrant was issued in 2010. And then what happened is they come along. The foreign power reaches into our country, gets them arrested, you know, and all of the stuff then that happened from there on in. All in circumstances where our minister could have declined to give the file and none of the stuff that happened in France would ever have happened afterwards. It's a terribly, terribly bad decision. And by the way, a mark of gross disrespect to our criminal justice system, independence of the office of the DPP, and in circumstances where those in authority and those with the power to make decisions knew that there were enormous question marks over what had been done in terms of investigating Ian Bailey. Do, do you feel, Frank Bottomer, that he would have been extradited without your, uh, your good counsel and your efforts on his behalf? And on the whole, are, are you happy Ian Bailey came into your life? Well, in relation to the first question, all I can say is I would have hoped that any lawyer who does the kind of stuff that I do would have fought, you know, hard for the guy. I did, absolutely. I put <laughs> a lot of effort into that extradition resistance from 2009-10, literally right through to 2019-20. That's a long time. Am I happy that he came into my life? Let, let me put it this way. I would have not done anything different. I have a, you know, it's the, let's say the legal equivalent of somebody who's, you know, in, you know, knocked down by the side of a road lying in a ditch and you either stop the car or you keep going. So I just stopped the car and I, you know, got involved with Ian and tried to help the best I could. Mm. Rightly so that I should. Am I happy with what I tried to do for him? I'm sure he made one or two mistakes, but, you know, uh, I did my best. My office did it. We all did our best here. He was a unique client. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> he won't be forgotten in my office anyway. Yeah, it, but is, is there any way you can be fully recompensed for all of your time and effort, or is that is this almost like a, a pro bono now that he's passed? Ah, uh, well, you know, I'm sure I generated income to do with the extraditions and stuff. I had I had so many files for Ian in terms of the three major things I did from. I don't want to sound, you know, anything like you know, anything about that stuff. It, it wasn't it wasn't the overriding concern. Let's say I. You know, like as a case, like, you know, to be, to have dealings with it, it was an extraordinary case. It remains extraordinary. It's an unsolved crime. Well, what's ironic, you know, in many ways is that in France, they have a conviction for the murder against Ian Bailey, and yet they're urging people in Ireland to cooperate with an Irish police investigation, which suggests that they mustn't be too, you know, yeah. confident in what they've done over there. It's a ridiculously illogical proposition, quite frankly. It's probably a bad analogy, Frank, but this case is pro- is probably as famous here in Cork as you know, as the Titanic would have been back then, and and maybe while it may not have the legs, uh, you know, of that legendary ship, uh, there is a certain appetite here to find the, the, the truth, and if not for Ian Bailey, is, then, yeah. then for Madame Toscan de Plantier. I couldn't agree more. Uh, you'd always have absolute sympathy for the family of the late Madame Toscan de Plantier, tempered as I have said with the concern that they have relentlessly pursued Ian Bailey, my client, when I believe that they should have accepted long since that he, that there wasn't sufficient evidence for him to be a meaningful suspect, let alone to be prosecuted. But yes, the, the human reaction has got to be, this is a shocking crime. It's a stain on our society. We should have investigated it better. We should have produced a suspect, an identifiable and proper suspect, 
And from there on in, yeah, it is it is a matter that just we sh- we should continue to look at the case, you know, see what we can do to to identify a suspect and lead to a prosecution in this jurisdiction. By the way, yeah, I, 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 I know you're under pressure to get away. Just a couple of quick ones. Will the, will the cold case investigation continue, in your opinion? Yes, I believe it will. Whether it will produce an outcome, I don't know, but it certainly will continue. Otherwise, you'll have to speak to the cold case team about that. Okay, um, just uh, you, you were just on a personal note, of course, you, you were talking to Ian Bailey over Christmas. You, uh, I believe you were in, in text contact over the last week or so. Uh, re- reports in the papers today, um, you know, saying that he said to a photographer, this is probably the last picture that'll be taken of me alive. Other reports saying he was on a kamikaze mission, having gotten doctor's orders to change the lifestyle, began smoking and drinking heavily or heavier. Um, he was a broken man, both physically and mentally at the end. He absolutely was, Neil, or at least Mick. Um, yeah, what was done to him is just shocking. He's the same age as me, more or less. Um, I'm sitting here at my desk talking to you. I hope hale and hearty. Nothing of the kind uh, that, you know, he experienced. None of us could imagine it. It's just an unimaginable life for 27 years. Hugely damaged he was by what was done to him. As to his last recent communications to me, very sadly, I think he knew... Uh, that he was just in very bad shape. <laughs> I was listening to a voicemail that he left me there about five, six days ago yesterday. It was, it was, it was, oh, sadly, you know, prescient as to his circumstances. And yeah, uh, yeah, there is no doubt that his health was, and he knew it, extremely bad, perhaps more than, you know, people would have realised. Yeah, a woman murdered in the most horrific of circumstances. Uh, a man accused um, publicly, I guess, but never, ever legally charged. Both are now dead, and though we're hopeful, it seems ever more unlikely with the passing of time that the full truth will ever be known. Yeah, that's the way it has panned out, Nick. It looks like it's a, it's a receding tide, and all that is very, very sad. And very much so for Ian Bailey, who had always wanted to live to see... Uh, you know, somebody being correctly identified and successfully prosecuted, but that, that I'm afraid, you know, that, that's not going to happen now for him. Once again, Frank Buttermer, thank you so much for the early opportunity to speak to you today. I know you're under relentless uh, demand from all other media outlets, so thank you very much and good morning. Thank you very much indeed, Nick. Call Neil now. 0818 104 106. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. And people have been calling and people have been texting. And before we go to our next little piece, I'll read some of those texts. Uh, Emma says, sad if he did it. They'll never know now. And if he didn't, his life was ruined. Anne says, RIP Ian, unfortunately, you'll never be able to clear your name now. John says he will now meet his final judge, God, who will know exactly what happened. And only truth. No lies, no cover-ups will be talked about. Uh, talked about, says John. Uh, Richard, RIP, hopefully the truth will eventually come out and name the guilty and clear the innocent. Um, I suspect a sigh of relief from the guardee, says Richard. Tony, he's finally gotten some peace, the poor man. RIP. Helena says, uh, from someone who was in court every day for the trial. It's a tough one. I hope Sophie's family find peace. Alan says he can rest in peace. The Irish government let him down. And Audrey says, hope he can finally rest in peace. And the real murderer never sleeps again. Now, Paul Byrne, Southern correspondent with uh, Virgin Media News, spoke to Ian Bailey a few days before the 27th anniversary 
uh, of the death of so- uh, Sophie Toscan du Plantier. This is his report. When a crime happens, for instance, like maybe in, in the UK with the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four, there is a need to put somebody in the frame. It doesn't matter if they're innocent or guilty. And that, that was the same with me. Ian Bailey has always insisted he had nothing to do with the murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. What do you say to the family of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier who believe to this day that you're responsible? I know I can't do anything about their belief that I'm responsible. They've got my, they always have had my, my full sympathies uh, and I've expressed that. But, uh, you know, I can't, people are entitled to believe what they want to believe. We can't change what people are going to believe. The body of the French film producer was found at her West Cork holiday home 27 years ago this Saturday. There was no evidence, maybe a little bit of circumstantial evidence, but nothing. Uh, you know, why was there nothing? Because I had nothing to do with it. And we do know that there was alien DNA, in other words, not the victim's DNA found on a sample was found on her shoe. It wasn't mine. It was tested against mine, so it wasn't mine. Whose it was, we don't know. Detectives are currently carrying out a review of the investigation. Will you go to your grave, an innocent man? Well, I mean, I'm not a saint, but I have nothing to do with this crime. You know, and that's, that's it. Would you be willing to take a lie detector test? I was prepared to myself, but I was advised legally not to. Uh, and I took the legal advice on that occasion. Later this week, the family of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier will attend a memorial mass in France. Paul Byrne, Virgin Media News. And Barry Roach, is Southern correspondent for the Irish Times, joins me in line two. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Mick. How are you doing? I'm good. The uh, cold case investigation, you would contend, is to continue. Do you have definite information on that? Yeah, Garda Press confirmed that to me last night, that the investigation is ongoing and active by Guardian West Cork, assisted by the Serious Crime Review Team. So, yeah, it's continuing. They have a lot of work to do yet, it, I would imagine. Okay, Mr. Bailey, of course, died from a suspected heart attack yesterday. There's rarely been 24 hours where so many acres of coverage, so many hours and hours uh, collectively uh, of uh, radio chat and talk and interviews have, uh, have followed the, the the death of of anybody uh, in this country. It's absolutely everywhere. Um, twice arrested for questioning about the murder of Miss Toscan de Plantier, never charged uh, after the DPP reviewed the Garda file and concluded there was insufficient evidence to uh, prosecute. Uh, however, convicted in absentia in, in France. You've covered this case from day one, as has uh, the likes of Paul Byrne. Uh, what's your feelings on the whole thing? And is there a certain sadness now that this era has ended? Yeah, I, I, I got a call from somebody in West Cork yesterday saying that uh, he had collapsed and people uh, had been performing CPR on him uh, for 20 minutes but with no response and then I made a call to one or two guard contacts and they came back and said he was dead. So actually it was quite sad. Yeah, uh, I've been covering for 27 years and I got to know him over the last, uh, since so 2013, so the last 10 years or so I, I wrote a piece. I'd been at all the various court events um, and his arrests and release without charge and abandon. Uh, I wasn't there when uh, people went and interviewed him in um, 97. After he was released, uh, he invited certain reporters down there. I wasn't. I was working for uh, Anne Cahill with the agency here in Cork and she went down so I didn't meet him on that occasion. But uh, in 2013, I'd covered a lot of stuff in between uh, Police Property Act and he uh, made a complaint of us, uh, against a witness in the case who, who was tried to cover that. So there were, you know, particularly after Eddie Cassidy from the Examiner 
went into the newsroom, uh, I've covered a lot of stuff and I've often been there on my own, I think at times, a few court appearances. But in 2013, after the first uh, French European arrest warrant came, or second one actually, I think maybe, uh, it meant he couldn't travel abroad and his mother died. And I rang Frank and I said, look, will you talk to me about that? And Frank said, he sounds about he did. So we rang and I said, I'd offer to go down to meet him. But he said, no, I prefer to get over the phone. So we did. But then after that, uh, I became quite friendly. He, he contacted me very frequently. He'd bring you up in services and old newsman. Uh, just thought you might be interested. There was four or five brigades in Oakland Road today. Uh, that sort of thing. So he'd contact you out of the blue. And then, uh, obviously, anytime there was uh, some in, some event in the story, as it were, the High Court case and so forth, I'd meet him at that and we'd talk. And the expedition, I'd meet him at that. And then every anniversary as well, I'd ring him. And uh, last year, sorry, 2022, I remember talking to him and we were, I was saying, it's that time again, Ian. And he said, yeah, the year, I said, it's coming around very quickly. And he said, yeah, the older you get, time seems to pass faster. So I had spoken to him. Uh, he rang me uh, about the 18th or so, December, I think, this year. He'd seen, so I looked at something on TikTok and he had rung me about that. And... Uh, we spoke about the anniversary of the story that I wanted to put to him because he revealed in the podcast that uh, which he brought out last year that the man who was seen following Sophie Tuscan the planter in Skull Village on the Saturday was seen following her up to her car being parked where she was parked in Ardmanham and that actually never came out anywhere that had never been in um, any of the statements or any of the trials so uh, I spoke to Sophie's uncle Jean-Pierre Gazot and he said yes that is true it's never emerged how does he know this and he challenged him to explain it so I went back to Ian about that and he said I'm sure it's in the statements I'm sure it's in the statements uh, I can't put my finger on it and he said it's a minor detail so we chatted and um, he was talking about I was asking how he was well I'd asked him about his health and he said he had two heart attacks in um, September and they had caused significant damage to his heart 75% damage and he had a cardioversion where the doctors had stopped his heart and restarted electric electrically to get it back into rhythm and the hope was he was on medication that he would build up strength and the heart would improve to a point where he could go in March of April of this year for a bypass so we were chatting about that I asked him about how he was going to spend Christmas Day because he was obviously in separation tools and he was uh, down in the flat in Barrick Street in Bantry and he said he'd got an air fryer which he was looking forward to trying and he'd got a, a good new second hand DVD player and he was going to watch some stuff over Christmas so we chatted and um, you know he was uh, he was a how would I describe him? He was a curious man. He was a, a mixture of so many things. You mentioned there about uh, so much coverage of him. I suspect he would be having a wry smile if he was watching this uh, because he certainly was a man who liked the limelight, as Judge Petty Moran said at the end of the Circuit Court case in 2003. He was unusual in that respect. Judge Moran said he certainly seemed to like the limelight. And he was. I don't think I've ever met anybody who craved such uh, media attention. And yeah, but he had a love-hate relationship with the media to, to, to a certain uh, extent, know. but he did court... He, he, sued, he sued papers, but I think... Uh, and obviously he, he lost that substantially, but at the same time, he craved attention. And I remember being down in Clon uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, he was up in the, drink, the drug-driving case, and it was being adjourned, and there was no real development in the story. And he came up to three or four of us and said, well... Do you want to talk? But there's nothing happening. And he was quite stunned that nobody really wanted to talk to him. I think the thing that he would have hated most was being ignored. That was his biggest problem. He was an interesting man, though. He was, uh, he was well read. And um, I was talking to Frank yesterday about him, and Frank made the point that I think is very well made that he was an extraordinarily resilient individual. I mean, he went to the High Court, he lost that. He went to the Court in the papers, he lost that. He won the significant ones in terms of the extradition, which meant he didn't go to France. And if he had, he'd been 
five years in jail after the sentence. But he always seemed to have a sort of positive outlook on things and always seemed to rise above the, the various blows that life dealt him. Now, some of them may have been self-inflicted, I'll say that, but he... Um, I mean, I came across a piece I did with him in 2016, coming up to the anniversary, and he said in it, um, I've prayed for Sophie and for her family, and I've prayed for us and that the truth will come out. And he said, I use the serenity prayer as a kind of daily coping mechanism. There would not be a day that goes by when it would not feature as part of my meditation. And he quoted this line from the prayer by an American theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr. God grant me the serenity to to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And he had that sort of uh, Buddhist-like sort of tranquility in the face of an awful lot of stuff. But then, you know, there's another side to him. He could be a very violent man, as we learned uh, back in 2001 when he assaulted Jules Thomas, and we heard the injury she suffered that time. And he admitted, in the course of the various trials, there were other previous times when he'd assaulted her back in 96. And in 93... That was a three-month suspended sentence, wasn't it? That was a three-month suspended sentence. You know, it stands out because the day he was sentenced... um, in Scape, I was driving back through Lep and it came on the radio that a plane had flown into the Twin Towers and uh, that was that day, that was 9-11 that he was sentenced. Um, but, you know, he, he had a... And, I mean, we heard during the libel action in particular from Peter Bileski who was called over by um, Jules' daughters, Ginny and uh, Fenella, I think, when that Ian had assaulted Jules and he found her at the bottom of the bed crying like a, a wounded animal and the screeks of pain. So, I mean, he had that side to him definitely as well, which was very disturbing, irrespective of whether you thought he was innocent or, or guilty or innocent of the murder. He had that violent streak in him and, you know, he bitted it and he sort of expressed his remorse over that and even wrote about it in his own poems. He said in one line and one poem, I made you feel though that was near writing about Jules. So he had that very volatile Jekyll and Hyde personality, yeah. I suppose. Um, I mean, I never actually, I spoke to him on the phone so few times when he had drink taken, but never sort of really quote him. But I mean, anyone who saw the Jim Sheridan documentary on Merchant Cottage would have seen uh, the footage of him at Jules' 70th where he's interviewed. And I mean, the man is, is clearly inebriated and, you know, I don't think it's particularly fair to him to be yeah. in that sort of context. So he was an unusual interesting, controversial character. Um, did, did he ever develop any warmth or rapport or respect for yourself and maybe Paul Byrne and any other of the, uh, the journalists who stuck with the case? I that even though when I was writing stuff, and I would write stuff, I mean, I wrote a big piece in 2019 after the French trial um, uh, in December, the anniversary of that year, and basically it's an analysis of the evidence that we heard in the libel action, the High Court, and the French trial. So I was able to use stuff there because it was privileged. And, I mean, there were huge inconsistencies in the story. You know, I mean, did he know Sophie? I'm just looking at here. I have 10 people who said in one court case another that he did. He denied that. When did he know about the murder? Uh, he maintained he learned of it only when Eddie Cassidy rang at 1.40pm on the 23rd. Uh, we had evidence from Caroline Leftwick and Paula Colman. They received phone calls from between... Um, 11 and 12 on the morning that uh, telling him them, uh, telling them he couldn't come because there'd been a murder we heard from James Camier now deceased that Jules said to him at half 10 on the morning 23rd there'd been a murder and there's other information out there as well I wrote these pieces and you know people sort they were I wasn't pulling my punches in them but he was always very courteous to me no I don't know whether he ever read them or not maybe he didn't but he was always very courteous and um helpful I suppose in some respects in the sense that he'd always took the call and I think he developed that I think most people who met him here I mean you know you mentioned Paul Byrne and Ralph Regan as well I suppose he, I remember he gave a lecture one night in the West Cork Hotel 
on jurisprudence or something after he got his law degree and like he was there giving us copies of the script and sort of helping us out and it was one of those you know 8 o'clock at night you need to get it sort of over by 9 deadlines and he was very helpful I think he had that real passion for journalism or right, still um, he sort of spoke at various stages in the high court and in his podcast about being drawn to journalism early on and uh, being influenced or inspired by uh, Bernstein and uh, Woodward in the uh, Watergate story and things like that and he had that no, to some extent he may have exaggerated his prowess as well because he um, a lot of the stuff he did in the UK was very um, you know sort of local stringer type stuff but um, no he had that and he described himself as a journalist he didn't like being called a former journalist you know even though he hadn't <laughs> written anything for after the I suppose his career more or less came as a journalist came a cropper after the first if not the second arrest certainly but he didn't like being called a former journalist um, he was a, he could be witty and very black humour um, uh, and which I got and I, I sort of gave it back to him at, at times remember he told me when I rang him in December about uh, he had this cardioversion procedure where you're put to sleep uh, and they stop your heart and they restart electric or start the, the electrically restarted so he told me he woke up uh, to be surrounded by ten smiling nurses something like this in that hospital so there was a famous line in his high court case where uh, Mary Farrell said the guards described him as uh, reading his poetry in a rocking chair on the beach surrounded by ten dancing lesbians so I said to him uh, was it just smiling nurses this time I suppose and so he laughed you know uh, there, there was a sense a sense Barry given in some of the morning papers today not only because he said this is probably the last uh, photograph you'll get of me alive to a photographer last week um, but that he had uh, come to face his own mortality or his impending mortality, not taking doctor's orders, continuing to drink and smoke heavily. Um, when you spoke to him or when you were in last in touch, did you have any indicator of this? Yeah, I, I sort of said to him, would he be on for a big sit-down interview? Not necessarily about the murder investigation, but about his life and death, the universe and everything. And he said he would. So I was to get back to him and he said, we can do it in the maritime. They've been very good to him. So I was sort of preparing uh, my questions, which I was to email him in advance. Uh, and... A part of the problem with Ian is that, uh, accepting that he had the or the heart attack back then, you still didn't think he was that close to dying in the sense that even when he was in hospital after those, he was taking photographs and said in the moat, you know, I'm on my dying, I'm on my deathbed uh, type of thing, and he's still taking photographs and dealing with the media. So as I say, the media focus that was unreal. So I didn't expect, like, I was quite shocked when I got the news yesterday. I mean, I didn't, if you were to ask me if Ian would have made 70, I'd have said no. Mm-hmm. I definitely thought he wasn't the lifestyle he was living. Yeah. And how, how will you remember him, Barry? He, uh, how will I remember him? Uh, I don't think he ever adequately answered a lot of the questions. I mean, my, my issue with him on the murder is that there are about 25 witnesses, I would reckon, who contradict him significantly on minor details. Of, did he know Sophie? When did he learn of the, of the killing? And other uh, things, for example, the bonfire in Stephen's Day. He denied that there, were, there was any bonfire in Stephen's Day. Yet Louise Kennedy and Brian Jackson, both Louise Kennedy, saw it. Brian Jackson heard him talking behind by, by, by a, a smoke spiralling up. Things like that he never satisfactorily a- answered. So I remember for those... Um, shortcomings in his version but even even I mean I wrote a piece last year and the year before sorry Christmas uh, I mean his story changed in terms of how he learned and what he did when he learned of the murder accepting that and this is for his own court cases so it couldn't be anything that he could accuse the Guardian of changing in statements but 
in the circuit court case, he said, when he got the phone call from Eddie Cassidy at one forty, he waited till uh, two o'clock news, and they drove over. Then uh, they drove over towards Alfie's house in Trina, Alfie Lyons' house, because they knew there was a French national over there. And they met Shirley Foster and the Boreen going into the house and asked her. Her version was they blew him off the road, or blew her off the road because they were heading there already. That was his version in two thousand and three in the circuit court. Right, so they went over because they knew it was French. In 2014, in the High Court, he said they went over that way to go to German's post office to find out because the post office would know and then German, the post office would know. But the shortest way from Ian's house or Jules' house to uh, German's post office is straight down Trumbo Road. You don't take a right and head west to go over to Sophie's house. So the story changed and those things he never adequately resolved in my mind. That's one way I remember him. Another way, uh, colourful character, uh, huge ego, um, complex. He could be good fun. He could be good. Oh, absolutely, absolutely mm. conf- conf- uh, complex, uh, eccentric, egotistical, entertaining, uh, uh, but a massive contradictions. Uh, mm. I suppose. I mean, I, I agree with Frank. A very resilient sort of character. I'm not sure that anybody else would uh, rise up, given all the things that were uh, thrown him. But a lot of that was self. Well, was, was, he, was he then the quintessential eccentric English bohemian type that West Cork seems to suit so well? Yeah, they're picked in there, and I actually think that's part, part of the argument often made by people say, oh, the guards couldn't understand them because, you know, he was so eccentric and all that. Guards in West Cork have been dealing with eccentric bohemian types <laughs> smoking weed since 1970-something, you know? Like, I mean, it's not that they were... He was stood out in that sense as being unusual. I think why he became a suspect, obviously, was history of violence towards Jews, and then... Uh, you know, there were various inconsistencies in his early statements and scratches that were seen in his hands, so things like that pointed them towards him, and then obviously Maliki Reed coming forward and what he said. And that whole thing about the various um, alleged admissions that he said were either misunderstood, and what he meant was people were saying that I said this, or black humour. Yeah, what, what he said there actually resonates in, 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 in the last recorded piece I played there. Uh, when asked, will you go to your grave an innocent man? He said, oh, I'm not, I, I'm not a saint. But I didn't do that murder. Oh yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, he made a very valid point to me when I did that piece in um, in 2019 about the cumulative evidence in France and the High Court and all that. He said just because I'm guilty of domestic violence and assaulting Jules, that doesn't make me a murderer, and that's a very reasonable and valid point to make, you know. But it, that so it was a factor that inclined the Guardian courts looking towards him. And the other thing I think that people need to sort of are people. place. I, I, I yeah. wandered into Tourmour Bay once on a boat in thick fog and it's only we realise <laughs> there's nowhere to go. Uh, and then a sort of a, a sort of realisation came over us. So we're in, we're, you know, we're just off the, the shoreline where, where, where Sophie was killed. It's, it's a, it, it will have interest here and I think there'll be a resurgence in interest now in the Jim Sheridan stuff and the other documentaries, maybe in some of the books and podcasts uh, as well. But the, yeah, I mean, I was, I was surprised because I, I was, I was, I was 
sure but in the other one I sort of they used me quite a lot and I've got reactions in the most extraordinary sort of places uh, people recognise me which you know sort of was a new experience to me because obviously I'm not a TV reporter so I don't sort of uh, I can walk around you haven't Paul Burns looks like most of the time thankfully but uh, no it's, it's, it had a huge sort of a audience and it's a story that I think will continue to fascinate I so to say I suppose arguably it's Ireland's most notorious unsolved murder exactly I'm going to have to leave it there Barry times against yeah. me but thank you very much Barry Roach Southern correspondent for the Irish Times thanks Barry good morning text or whatsapp Neil now 0868 104 106 The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show this is Mick Mulcahy David McGrath on line 4 good morning David Good morning, Nick. You were a num- the, the, the number one supporter of Ian Bailey, you say? Well, I probably well, just just an opinion I have. I'm just probably a, lot, a few more out there, I'd say. But um, yeah, I've been a, a, a fan of uh, I was a supporter of Ian Bailey for since 1996. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Sophie was murdered actually on my birthday, the 23rd of December, 1996. That's how I remember so well. But um, I mean, it, when I got a text yesterday from a friend of mine to say that Ian Bailey had died, uh, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't upset, I was sad, but I wasn't surprised because I said to people there before Christmas that he had two heart attacks in September and uh, I just happened to pass a comment to people that I'd be surprised if he, if he lived, uh, if he lived um, to Christmas and uh, I'd be surprised that the man um, has passed on because the 25 years that uh, in his life has uh, done a terrible. Um, uh, it's, 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 it's obvious the, the toll it took mentally and, and uh, in the end physically as well. I mean, I was even surprised. I was shocked when I heard he was 66. I actually, I didn't know his age, but I was shocked to hear he was 66. I thought, I thought he was definitely 70, if not more, and but. Uh, 66 is a, uh, nowadays like it's like a 50 year old 20 years ago like I mean it's, it's very young so um, I was reading in the examiner this morning uh, that uh, he had a meal in a seafood restaurant at Bentley two weeks ago I think the couple brought him in and bought him a meal and uh, they said when they got up to leave looking back at him he looked a very forlorn figure and a couple of days later they came back into town and they said he was standing up against the wall and they approached him he said he wasn't able to walk to his car he was physically not able to do it, and uh, they helped him into his car. He looked, uh, he was he was physically and mentally broken over this whole ordeal over 25 years. Uh, I mean, like, he got 25 years, Mick, um, in this fast in this of a case in France uh, three years ago. Uh, but he's, 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 he's a prisoner in his own country for the last 25 years. He couldn't go to his mother's funeral in England. Uh, you know, and there's no, there's no, there might have been a bit early on in the case of a bit of circumstantial evidence, but there's no concrete evidence whatsoever to say that the man killed Sophie. And funny enough, having said that, concrete evidence down the line in the next few months may prove him either guilty or innocent. Okay, the, the, look, the only hope now, really, for people following the case, and especially the Toscan de Plantier family, is that the cold case investigation will bring out new DNA, or obviously not new DNA, but new techniques will bring out DNA 
uh, from the blocks, from the uh, uh, from the, yeah, from the, the cr- off, yeah, yeah, because and and there was blood on her clothes as well. Um, so how and, and, it, and there was also blood on the gate, mostly the, the, a lot of blood on the gate, but the gate has gone missing for years. Yeah, the gate's missing. Yeah. yeah. Do, 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 you think, do you think the appetite is there for that? I mean, the guards didn't exactly cover themselves in glory, but you you, you would hope that well, they would look for. Uh, if there's a murderer breathing today, that that person would be found and brought to justice. Well, I believe I, I believe that uh, a lot of the girls that had originally done the investigation, I think a number of them are dead. But I believe that these Gardy and maybe Gardy uh, at the present day, Cena Gardy, I believe the girls know exactly who them just murdered. That's what you believe. Uh, I mean, there's too many cracks in this case since the started with more as evidence. And the girl's supposed to be involved. There's a lot, a lot of cracks. Uh, this guy coming over from France for a few days and disappearing back to France. And this guy walking around the top. There's a terrible lot of cracks in it. And there's no evidence. To, and, I mean, if he did do it, like, surely, but God, there was so much. I think she was hit 74 times with a concrete block, Mick. And, uh, it was in the, six, in, 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 in the 60s, I think. Um, let's I think, yeah. Whoever done it, there must have been blood on that person's body from head to toe, fingernails, hair, everywhere, and there was nothing found in Bailey. Not a drop of blood. So, David, I'll, um, have to, I'll have to leave it there and go for news at 10, but thank you very much for your contribution this morning. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters. And it's eight minutes past ten. We have lots of texts, some uh, online and some coming in on the SMS system. Uh, the poor man, he can now finally have peace. What torture he endured. Uh, Ian Bailey had a hard life if he did do it, but an even harder one if he didn't, says Eddie. And says, hope he finds the softest bed in heaven. R.I.P. Mr. Bailey. Margaret says, uh, what they put that poor man through, uh, R.I.P. Ian Bailey. I knew him well and he was a lovely person, says Trevor. Uh, Tara, innocent until proven guilty I'll never understand how this man was branded prime suspect when those investigating managed to lose the main piece of evidence, a large steel gate. It was easy to point fingers at the local wine drinker who had hit his partner. Uh, Jim, I hope the truth, uh, Jim says I hope the truth would come out a lot of people involved in that case Oliver says at least he might find some peace now disgraceful the treatment he got all those years R.I.P. in and they continue in in that vein Regina saying the witch hunt is finally over Michael saying they hounded the poor man to his grave Paul saying so sad he had so much trauma and issues it was eventually going to take his toll those were online these are from the SMS and WhatsApp system I honestly believed Ian Bailey was innocent Uh, the cops and the law ruined that man to believe Ian Bailey committed the crime he's accused uh, of is to acknowledge uh, that Mr. Bailey is the greatest criminal mind in Irish history, says Paddy. Make, of course, Frank Buttermer is going to speak well of Ian Bailey. Look at the amount of money he's made from representing him over the years. Bailey was a highly intelligent but insane man who uh, has lived off the state for years, and I bet the state will now cover the cost of his funeral as well. Hi Mick, you're completely wrong about the people of West Cork's view of Ian Bailey. Most of us had concluded that he was innocent over 20 years ago. Please let him rest in peace for God's sake. Put my hands up there, I used the wrong word. I said most, I should have said many uh, and qualified it but uh, at that stage Frank Buttermer had already already started to rebut me uh, so I left it off but that was my fault I'm sorry about that. He can rest in peace now. The dogs on the street knew that he was an innocent man. Did they look at people who came to Ireland from France and back again the weeks before Sophie's sad death 
Uh, I wonder did Frank Buttermer think that Ian Bailey beating the crap out of his partner was out of character and one final one uh, why was Ian Bailey never compensated and who paid Frank Buttermer for 27 years is the question quick traffic update there's a bus broken down just as you come into Mallow from the Limerick side so on the Limerick Cork Road uh, just outside Mallow as you approach Mallow there's a bus broken down and it is uh, tending to uh, cause some delays there uh, will you go to, uh, let's go to line number one uh, and uh, talk to Trevor. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning, Mick. How are you? Good. Nice to talk to you again. Same here, same here. Uh, Ian Bailey was your tenant, was he? He was, yeah, when he started to the house and renting out to students. And one year he arrived and I gave it to him and uh, I'm a bit breathless because I'm walking. Oh. And uh, I gave it to him anyway and... Uh, the wife said to me the next day or two days there, do you see who rented your staff? And she, I said, no. Yes, she's Ian Bailey. I said, who's he? And she had to tell me, because I don't, I don't listen to news, I don't watch okay. read papers, I've not just all that garbage, I've enough to look after myself and my world. Okay, where, where, where and, is uh, this particular property, Trevor? Uh, Magazine Road. All right. I uh, didn't know he and lived, he he lived in a, the city for a while. He, he did that, he was with me for three years, while he um, was at college doing law and he used to keep it on during the summer then as well and sometimes Jules' daughter used to stay there for a few weeks and uh, I found him very nice and okay, a lot of people mightn't like him but I found him good and uh, he used to come every Monday morning and he used to always bring me some homemade jam or cucumbers or lettuce or all that sort of stuff and I had many a good conversation with him. Yeah, he, I, 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 I know he was very creative and he kind of made a, a living, if not a sideline maybe, I don't know. Uh, yeah. You know, from the, the farmer's markets and things. Um, yeah. Crafts, was he making jams as well, yeah? He was, yeah, he was. And he was, and at Christmas, each year he gave me a painting from Jules. Right, and uh, did, did you ever look at the documentaries or the Netflix series, Jim Sheridan stuff? I, I didn't really, I had no interest. Yeah. I have too busy, my life is too busy to be looking at all these things. So, but on the face of it, on a sample of one, as they say, you found him to be a very nice man. I found him to be a very nice man, okay. I, I heard afterwards he has beat Jules up, but I know a few people around my area who've done that too, and, you know. Should I go for a pint with him? I've, no, he, when I knew him, he wasn't drinking, but he called to my house often. Uh, I say, he asked me, because it was about a year ago, and he'd call and I'd make a cup of coffee for him, I'd have a chat, and he'd go away again, and I bumped into him down Glen Gareth one day with my wife, and she gave him a miraculous medal, and he was delighted to get it from her. When's the last time I saw him, Trevor? The last time I saw him, I'd say, was last summer in Glen Gareth. Okay. No, I know a lot of people say nasty things about him, but I certainly couldn't say anything nasty about him. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough. And he was a good tenant all, all the time he was with you. Yeah. Oh, I tell you, no, if you threw him out at four o'clock this evening, you could rent it at five past four and you didn't have to touch it. <laughs> well, that's, that's a nice testament. Ian Bailey was your tenant. Thanks, Trevor, for, was, yeah. thanks, Trevor, for, for, for your input. Okay, Mick, talk to you again. Cheers. Okay, cheers, bye. Now, we're going to okay. move on, bye, but bye, before, bye. before we do, uh, I want to play a little clip of uh, Neil... Uh, speaking to Ian Bailey about having to relive the same incident over and over again and also what his hopes would be for the future if he was free. Where do you get the strength to do that though, year in, year out? 
just to keep living the same nightmare? I don't know. I mean, one, I know I have nothing to do with it, so that helps immensely. You know, I've got a faith um, as well, and that helps me, and I've had a lot of support from a lot of people. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I've been very determined and, um, you know, to, to keep on protesting my innocence and to do anything that I could to, to, to support that. And writing to the commissioner now is the, the most recent thing that I you know, could do to... Do you think that do. there's somebody out there or that there are people out there, one or more, that know what happened on that night? I'm so pretty I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure and certain that there are people in Ireland who know I have nothing to do with it. Uh, who, who, whoever was the killer, I don't know. But I know that there are people, certainly within the guards. I mean, if I, I've even been told by guards informally who I've met that they know that I had nothing to do with it. And to the future, what would you do with the future, the rest of your life then, if you were free to travel and go about your business unimpeded? I don't know. Uh, I would just hope, and my prayer has always been, that the truth about this would come out at some point before I was dead. And, and, and that is still my, my, my hope. I, I don't know. The late Ian Bailey speaking to Neil Prendival some time ago. Right then, it is a quarter past ten. We didn't get to the morning papers, which I'll do a quick review of now as we went directly into uh, our interview with Frank Bottomer. Uh, one dead as Storm Isha lashes Ireland. One person has died as uh, Killer Storm Isha swept across Ireland, unleashing ferocious 130 kilometre per hour gales. Uh, that was recorded. That uh, Was it in Mayo or Sligo? Uh, that 130 was recorded. The victim was a driver of a car which veered off the N17 between Clare Morris and Ballandine in County Mayo around 6.30pm. To the Echo, and Monday's Echo has wide disruption as Storm Isha hits flights, train services and power supplies were disrupted yesterday as Storm Isha arrived in Cork. Strong and gusty southwesterly winds of up to 130 kilometres per hour with strong gales caused power outages in several parts of the county. Train services between Cork and Cove were also suspended for a time. I know the Cross River Ferry stopped at one stage yesterday as well and there were trees down all over the place. The status orange wind warning was due to be lifted at 2 o'clock this morning but the effects of the storm of course, will be likely to cause disruption today for commuters with debris on roads, fallen trees, spot flooding and road closures expected in several parts of Cork City and County. Bailey dead is the huge headline on the front of the Sun. Murder suspect Ian, Daly, uh, Ian Bailey has died of a suspected heart attack. Bailey collapsed on the street in Bantry, County Cork yesterday. 66 years old, uh, the poet always denied killing Sophie Toscan de Plantier in Skull in December 1996, uh, despite a French court finding him guilty in 2019. Lemur has the truth, has died with Bailey. No closure for victims' loved ones. Danny Deval reporting that the family of Sophie Toscan de Plantier have said the truth about her killing uh, will never be known after Ian Bailey's death yesterday. And uh, speaking uh, to the Irish Mirror, uh, Sophie's uncle Jean-Pierre Gazot said, uh, we'll never get the truth uh, from the mouth of the killer. They still believe uh, that Ian Bailey was the killer, uh, even though the family were big enough to offer sympathies to the friends and family of uh, Ian Bailey. We'll never know the, the truth about Sophie is also uh, the front of the mail today. Uh, the family, once again, of uh, the French filmmaker said they may never know the truth. Uh, they made the comments after hearing of the news of the sudden death of Bailey uh, yesterday. Sophie's family plea is the Echo's front page, along with uh, a picture 
of uh, Ian Bailey um, at some sort of a pop-up stall, uh, probably selling his uh, arts and crafts. The uncle of Sophie Chescan de Plantier said, uh, we may never know the truth following the death of uh, Ian Bailey yesterday. He said, may he rest in peace for Sophie's family, friends and the French justice system. He was regarded as guilty in connection with Sophie's murder. However, the Irish justice did not share the same perspective. The situation is profoundly frustrating for all of us, as it seems we'll now never know the truth from Ian Bailey himself. And urgently, we appeal for the Irish police to persist in their investigations with a particular focus on DNA evidence and potential collaborations aiming to rectify the shortcomings of the Irish judicial authorities in solving the case within Ireland. And as Frank Buttermer told me uh, not just an hour ago, uh, he finds that a little strange. Uh, that they firmly believe that he's guilty, yet they're calling for increased uh, focus and attention and impetus and momentum uh, in the uh, cold open case and uh, to bring the DNA to bear. I suppose they probably feel the DNA will finally prove them right in their feelings about Ian Bailey, uh, but maybe it won't. Uh, I think the most important thing is that the cold case investigation continues. It's mainly the fault of Ireland, says Sophie's family, that they may never learn the truth. That's in the Irish Independent. I feel nothing, says Jules Thomas, who stood by her ex-partner for years. Jules Thomas stood by Ian Bailey through centuries of accusations, through decades, a bigger pardon, of accusations, court cases and stress. But upon hearing of his death yesterday, she said, I feel nothing. I have uh, had no emotional connection with him for quite a long time. Though sorry to hear of his death, uh, as I would, she said, with anyone I know, the Welsh-born artist added, I'm not even thinking about him. He's gone and he isn't in my thoughts. That's it. Uh, Bailey, of course, always uh, protested his innocence of the murder of the mother of one killed on December 23rd. 1996 in Skull in West Cork and Miss Thomas said it isn't about believing he did it or not I know he was innocent I just knew he couldn't have done it the endless attention and speculation is bound to have had an influence on his declining health but that's all I can say Jules Thomas is now 73 an Irish couple have been killed while walking their dog in England police in Britain investigating a tragic road collision in which an Irish couple were killed without walking their dog uh, near their home uh, the couple are both believed to be in their 60s and are from Cork, were struck while on the road outside Maidstone in Kent on Saturday. Uh, it's believed they were hit by a BMW X5 car. The collision happened at uh, Thornham Lane in Bearstead, and police have questioned the male driver of the car. Energy price war ignites. Good news for customers. Uh, cuts, uh, cuts in bills coming again to woo customers. A new energy player has responded to price reductions from larger rivals by announcing a third cut to its electricity tariffs. In what's seen as evidence of a mounting price war, you know energy is reducing its fixed rate from today. None of this end of February, end of March stuff from today. Uh, it only put through a cut at the start of this month and now it's responded to price decreases from Electric Ireland and Board Gash Energy and said its latest cut will make its uh, fixed rate the cheapest in the market. The TV licence will be with us for at least another year. Uh, the TV licence here for another year is the Cabinet debate switching to a revenue charge or exchequer funding for RTE, the Taunishta has said. Neil Martin said a decision on the new funding model to replace the TV licence is due soon, but people will pay the fee until next year. 
the licence fee it has to be stressed right now for the remainder of this year and perhaps even next year before we get the new arrangements in place uh, is the key and it's essential and we have to reaffirm people's need to pay their licence fee to support public service broadcasting and public service media. Uh, Licence fee revenue has plummeted 18.7 million euro since secret payments to former Late Late Show presenter Ryan Tuberty were revealed last June and the government was forced into a 56 million euro bailout for RTE to keep the station solvent. In the first week of the year, nearly 2,000 fewer licences were sold compared to 12 months ago, adding up to a shortfall of 284,000 in just one week. The uh, Sun today has flying doctors. Drones could save heart attack patients. Here's an interesting one. Joan, uh, drones should be used to deliver defibrillators in a cardiac emergency, a Fine Gael senator has said. Sean Kine's message comes as 5,000 lives are lost every year in Ireland to cardiac arrest. The Irish Sun has led the crusade, uh, they say, after we revealed how Principal Tim O'Toohig saved a young pupil's life because a nearby GEA club had a defibrillator. Now it appears they could be dropped by drones. And if you're interested in the uh, continuing coverage of uh, Ian Bailey, the last uh, days of the man who said the case would kill him uh, are covered in the Irish Mirror today, including a, a sort of a timeline of events over the last 27 years. It's 23 minutes past 10 now. Text or WhatsApp Neil now. 0868 104 106. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Now to matters weather, which we probably would have started with without the passing of Ian Bailey. And on WhatsApp, Alan O'Reilly is of Carlow Weather. We had a very serious uh, weekend of weather. Alan, good morning. Good morning, Mick. We certainly did. Did it live up to your expectations of terror? Yeah, I think it was pretty much as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, I mean, it's, you don't have weather stations everywhere, so it's hard to, you know, get the readings from every location. But I think the Power Check app kind of shows pretty much supports how strong the winds were right across the country, given the level of uh, outages. And we saw gusts of 137 kilometres an hour at Macehead. 133 kilometres an hour at uh, Malinhead and a private weather station from Mayo Sailing Club in Clue Bay recorded a gust of 150 kilometres an hour. But even closer to home, Ugoch's Point had sustained winds of over 83 kilometres an hour um, for a time, which is in the red level warning. So it really was a very strong storm that brought damage and winds to many areas. Yeah, there's a sense uh, with some people in Cork that we got away with the worst of it. These depressions often spin northwards, of course, with the rotation of the earth. Uh, And as you know, when we get hammered, we get hammered. And we were very, very strong on the winds for a while. Many, many fallen fallen trees, but really nothing like uh, the northwest suffered. No, the Cork did escape the worst of it, um, especially considering the impact of some of the areas in the northwest. But like Kerry, for example, not too far away, did see, you know, especially near to the west coast and Kerry saw a lot of uh, damage and some of the strongest coasts were up along the west coast. So in and in this case, Cork was lucky to miss the worst of it, but obviously still impacted by, by fallen trees, etc. And what's coming in next? Uh, the next low pressure system is on its way. It's in the post. 
Yes, there's a storm developing out in the Atlantic. It's going to track to the northwest. It's it's not as intense and it's not intensifying as it moves, but it's still going to bring some very windy weather tomorrow evening and tomorrow night. A yellow weather warning has been issued by Metairn to cover all areas now. Um, it hasn't been named. The next storm name is Jocelyn, if we do get a storm, but this one hasn't been named as yet at least. But there is a risk again of some very strong winds and probably the northwest will see the worst of it again. But given the fact that, you know, we had so much damage overnight, there is likelihood to be maybe some trees that are hanging on and maybe some bits of houses that have damage, etc. So now would be a good time to survey any damage and maybe try and uh, take down any loose um, bits and pieces before the next one arrives yeah, d- tomorrow. Don't evening. let the next storm make it worse. Exactly, that's it. Exactly, and and if you if you haven't if you haven't secured your trampoline or taken the wind the uh, the sail that is the, uh, the 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 side netting down yet, I think I shared enough pictures of uh, trampolines in the wild yesterday to put people uh, at, uh, get people to pay attention this time and start doing that. Yeah, what 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 were people in in those clubs up, up the country doing with those air domes up? I mean, I, I know they keep the weather out. <laughs> they're not. Uh, yeah. They're not exactly the. You know, they, they, they have a fair bit of windage, shall we say, and uh, that they, pres- they, they present a, a, a strong target for the wind. They do indeed, and there was two of them, I believe, actually damaged. Now, I think the one in Goggle was, but they were trying to get permission to actually replace it. Um, but uh, unfortunately, they don't. They don't stand up well in these kind of conditions. Unfortunately, no. So the next one coming in, it's, it's, it's not quite batting down the hatches, but we're going to have, I think, uh, here in the Cork area, strongest winds will be about 3 o'clock tomorrow. But there's going to be yellow level wind warnings across the country. We're going to have heavy rain overnight here, but it looks like not so much rain uh, here tomorrow as they may get up the country. Yeah, the heaviest of the rain will be further in the west, but it will still be quite rough for time. But yeah, the heaviest rain will be in the west and the northwest again. And there's a bit of a respite coming on Wednesday. Wednesday is a better day and Thursday and Friday are not too bad. So hang in there. It is it is getting a little bit better, but I think we'd all go back to the cold and the blue skies now if we had a choice. <laughs> all right, uh, Alan O'Reilly from Carlo Weather. Thanks, thanks very much for looking ahead for us as always. Cheers, Mick. Cheers, thanks. Bye-bye. No, it's not going to be as bad as we had uh, over yesterday and last night. Uh, but still, it's going to be pretty windy and most of the rain in Cork, I think, falling uh, in the middle of the overnight. Uh, maybe about three o'clock tomorrow, there's uh, there's some heavy rain falling here. Uh, but for all that, it looks as though it's uh, completely survivable. If you take uh, last night uh, as a barometer, it was much, much worse than it's going to be. Now then, speaking of bad weather and its effect on people, Barry Holland is the Head of Communications at Cork Airport. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Mick. Very disruptive to Cork Airport's operations, of course. Uh, Cork Airport is at a height over sea level, isn't it? It is. Um, we are, I suppose, at pains to say today, Mick, that we are at, um, we're operating back as normal, thankfully, with the exception of the cancellation of the early morning KLM service to Amsterdam. However, there were a number of uh, cancellations, diversions and delays yesterday. We had 14 cancellations in total yesterday. That was eight outbound services, six inbound. There were six diversions and four of them which went to Shannon Airport and one to Dublin and one to Birmingham. So we did have a we did have a significant impact yesterday. However, the airport remained open and operational throughout and wherever possible, we were able to facilitate the arrival of services and the departure of services albeit some were obviously then impacted by delays all over Europe and the UK. Yeah, so you had nine cancellations and six diversions. Where where did the in, uh, diversions in, end in, up? In total, in, total, in total, 14 cancellations and six diversions. Oh, was it? Okay, 14 and six. How many people yeah. did, did that uh, discommode and, and what, what are their alternative arrangements? 
I suppose that it, it, it varies. It varies, Mick, really. Um, I don't have necessarily have the figures of the accurate, I suppose, number of people on board to hand. However, I, um, passengers, wherever possible, air, they, they would have been accommodated by their airlines, whether that be a, um, a transfer from the likes of um, from Shannon or Dublin um, back to Cork. Um, then, obviously, then when it comes to other services that might be diverted abroad, those services would have to be rescheduled. So, in total, there were, and for those who would have been um, at Cork and their services cancelled, um, obviously, then airlines um, are in the position to either... Um, mop, mop, kind of mop up that, that capacity this morning, is it? Yeah, well, they rebook, obviously. The, the rebooking process for some airlines then commences, then the passengers are rebooked on other services or later services. And um, so that's, it's, well, it's, at the time, I suppose, it's, it, it's difficult enough to, to manage because, if, you know, in such instances as yesterday, you know, with the significant amount of cancellations, it was difficult. But I'm sure that the airlines were on top of it and they managed to uh, either rebook or accommodate passengers wherever they were travelling to. OK, and even though we have some inclement weather coming our way tomorrow, it looks as though things will, will go ahead as normal? Absolutely. The operation, operationally, you know, the airport remained open fully yesterday. The airport is always open. Um, and we, are, I suppose, we stress that as well. And when passengers are seeking information in relation to their flights, what we would always recommend is that they check directly with their airline uh, for the most up-to-date information at the time. OK, while I have you, Barry, with the cold of last week and the wind and rain of this week, people are obviously looking towards the summer holliers. Uh, what's happening at the airport as regards new routes, capacity, etc.? Well, there'll be a bumper summer on the way, Mick. Um, it certainly will be uh, one of a, a very busy summer. It's um, indication, early indications at this point that, that, uh, that bookings are strong for the summer season. Uh, the summer schedule itself kicks off at the end of March. Um, so in the meantime, obviously, there will, be, there will be more announcements pending in relation to new routes. Uh, for the summertime, but what I suppose at this point in time, it's it's always a good uh, booking period for families or people looking to get away for the summer. Now is the time to book, so we'd always recommend that they visit the Cork Airport website. There's a comprehensive list of our destinations on our website and places to to pick and choose from, uh, even if it's in between now and the summertime to get away from the from the inclement weather, as you say, and get out to somewhere somewhere sunny and somewhere warm. There's plenty of choice of destinations in Southern Europe and uh, and beyond. So um, we'd always recommend that people have a look at our website, CorkAirport.com, to have a, a full look at what the destination they're on offer. Okay, I wouldn't know the full list of destinations. The, the one we use now and again is uh, the one to Tenerife. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I'm noticing that there are... Uh, there are much more services there this year and when, when you get a Tenerife flight, for instance, leaving at 10.25, that means it's come up from the Canaries at 6 in the morning is going back down. And then another one, let's say the following day, is a, is a 10 to 6 flight. That's going down from Cork and coming back up. So this dovetailing of uh, operations must be a sign, I would think, that uh, business is good in Cork. Well, business is very good, and in particular, you referenced Tenerife this winter. We have both Ryanair and Aer Lingus operating services to Tenerife uh, this winter, which has significantly increased the amount of seats and capacity on that route. I suppose it's testament, I suppose, to the popularity of the Canary Islands to make, you know, because you have Ryanair and Aer Lingus both flying to Lanzarote as well That's right. in the winter time. Lanzarote is so, huge you know, with Cork people, isn't it? It certainly is, absolutely. You know, um, it's a you know it's a it's a very popular hotspot for you know for for Irish people, uh, whether it is either in the winter break or sometime in the in the summer. But we have connections now to all the Canary Islands. Um, obviously, Aer Lingus and Ryanair both flying to Tenerife and Lanzarote, but Ryanair also flies to the Grand Canary and Fort Ventura as well. 
So we have we have the we have the canaries covered in the fullest extent. So there is a significant amount of capacity there. We also have a significant amount of capacity on routes to Spain as well and Italy now. This yeah, this, the, the, the old reliables, of course, your Malagas and your Alicantes and your Palma de Mallorca and all that kind of thing. Uh, and, and not just those. You have the likes of Valencia and Seville as well, which were two of the newer destinations added on recently as well. So you have those to choose from as well. And that's what people like. That's what car people love is the the selection of new destinations to be able to travel and experience somewhere new as well. and like you know the old reliable certainly are good and they are bread and butter to a certain extent but you have the, the newer destinations as well which are sure to be attractive with Okay you. and to places more further flung are there anything direct to Greece and Turkey? We can't confirm at the moment but there may potentially be good news coming on that front very soon. Okay you're sworn to secrecy. Barry Holland, Head of Communications at Cork Airport. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. Now, th- thanks very much. Now, we got a text last night in the old Neil Prandival WhatsApp group and I said to myself, it's a long, long way from Clare to here <laughs> because a certain member of our team was uh, looking like she was going to be stuck in uh, London. Went to London for the weekend, didn't we? I did, Mick. I said I'd just have a quick hop over to London um, and then last night I thought I might have to be staying there a little bit longer. And what happened? Well, I think I was one of the lucky ones. Um, I knew I knew there was talk about this storm coming and then on Sunday, you know, I was in holiday mode and then I kind of checked in a small bit and saw all the reports of the weather over here at home and I said, right, how is this going to work now? So look, my flight was due to leave Luton at six o'clock. So as usual, arrived two hours uh, before the flight. And when we went through security, delay, another hour. So it was due to leave then at about seven. And then I said to myself, now I'm not a great flyer, but I do it, do you know? I, I still do it, but I would still be nervous. nervous never oh yeah, even in fine weather, like. So I said to myself, right, let me just have a look here at Cork Airport, see how the arrivals are going. And Uh-oh. I just saw diverted, <laughs> diverted, diverted, cancelled, diverted. So no plane had actually landed in Cork that I could see. Um, except for our flight that was still due to land. So I was like, right, we were, could be in for a rocky one here. Now, I must say, we were waiting by the gate in Luton and could hear this sort of noise, thought it was machinery and realised it was actually the wind hitting off the roof in Luton. So it was actually very windy in Luton as well. And is that, is that Ryanair or Wiz? It was Ryanair that we were travelling with. So we were we were queuing up, waiting to get through. We were about an hour and 20 minutes delayed, I'd say, by the time we were on the runway getting into the plane. And even the runway, I mean, it was so windy there was a woman behind me queuing on the runway you know you're shivering in the runway wind blowing and she had two small kids with her and they were nearly being blown away like that's how windy it was in Luton before we'd even taken off Crazy. And it was a, yeah, it really was. And, and the we, flight itself was a bumpy. The, it was okay. Um, it was rocky on the runway in Luton even before we took off, just sitting waiting to take off. But then once we took off, we came across to Cork. Um, and the pilot was very informative, to be fair. Now, he kept updating us, saying we were going to be in a holding pattern here because the winds were too high to, to attempt a landing. Um, so we were in a holding pattern for first for about 15 or 20 minutes, circling around Cork, circling around Cork. Then he updated us again, saying we had to go into another holding pattern, circling, circling, circling. And you know the way people are mumbling and muttering and speculating, you know, oh, everyone's being diverted. Will we end up in Shannon? Will we go back to London? This, that and the other. So, you know, the plane was a bit tense, but people were grand. It was people with kids, really, that I felt sorry for. Yeah. Do you know, it's harder when you're travelling with smallies um, but the staff were brilliant the pilot was very informative and then he said we're going to 
were going to land in Cork. So I think a lot of people were really delighted about this. They didn't want to be going either back to London or oh. going to Shannon and getting a bus or anything like that. You imagine the hassle. I, exactly. Like I was kind of in two minds. I was like, I don't know if I even want to try and land here now. And it was a bit rocky on the way down. But look, we landed. We were, it was probably a two, two and a half hour flight, two hours, 20 minutes flight in the end. And you know yourself, it would only take one fifteen, One, yeah, maybe 1.15. Usually. So we were, I must say, one of the very lucky ones to land. Even when I looked at, at, at flights that were due in after our one, Heathrow had been cancelled, Stansted had been cancelled, Gatwick was delayed, Manchester was delayed, Amsterdam was cancelled, Seville was cancelled. You know, there were still lots one, of... One plane left Birmingham for... Dublin, I think, and, oh. and it was diverted to Belfast and, and maybe try Dublin again. That was that and sounded went, like went back over and landed where it started <laughs> three hours later. <laughs> it was like around the world in eighty days for some people. Like, and and you know, we were we were very lucky to land, um, but uh, you know, not great for the faint of heart. I was kind of gripping onto my boyfriend for a good while. All right. <laughs> so, what did you get up to in London? Anything interesting? Ah, uh, just the usual visiting family now and then taking in a bit of comedy and sights and plenty of food and things like that. So yeah. it was worth it. It was worth it. <laughs> I came across very very nervous flyer on a read well not recent about six mm. months ago uh, who asked the person next to them they were shaking like how often do planes crash oh god you know the answer they got I don't want to know just once oh Mick stop the Neil Prendival show on Red FM conversation that matters Good morning from the Neil Prandival Show. It is a quarter to 11 and uh, I'm joined by local historian Dennis Coffey uh, on line two for a nostalgic look uh, at childhood memories in the Middle Parish. But first, uh, Dennis, uh, on the topic of the day, you met Ian Bailey three times. Oh, yeah. Good, good morning, Mick. Um I think the last time we met you were in the swimming pool. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I met Ian on, on three occasions. Mick, um, the last time uh, it was August of last year below in Scully, you know, and I was very interested in the book of poetry he had brought out. Um, and um, he, he actually came up with a novel idea of how to sell the book because nobody was buying it at that particular time. And I'm not saying there was anything wrong with it, but he started... Um, like when you're talking to him, it's very hard to talk to him. God be good to him, but because people keep coming up to him, you know. So the, when you're talking to him, you're interrupted by various people coming up and saying hello to him or you know, selfies you or something, is it? Passing by, yeah, for selfies. So he, he came up with the idea that if you bought the book of poetry, he'd have a selfie with you, and that seemed to have worked for him. You know, so his books started to started to sell that way. But I, I found him a very interesting person to talk to because. Um, we were doing a history project uh, in Skull at the time and um, with Celtic Historical Group, which was established in 1985. And he was very interested in what we were doing. Now, we've, we didn't speak anything about what happened uh, to the late Sophie, but um, that didn't actually even come up. Part of it did all right, I suppose, in a strange way, where I just asked him, uh, what was his coping mechanisms like and how did he get through it? So it would have come up in that kind of conversation, but you'd no sooner have that out and someone be over again, you know, even if you went into a restaurant with him or, or a bar, you know, people would come up to him. So he was a form of a celebrity, really, in his, in his own way. I suppose, really, you could say, since the time he became a suspect uh, in, in, in the murder in 1996, uh, he became a, a kind of a celebrity, really. You know, now whether he whether he liked that status or not, I really don't know. But um, people did seem to elevate him. You know, for for no reason or other. Like you could be standing there, and within twenty minutes, he'd be surrounded. You know, and um, I think he kind of liked that in his own way. No, mm. I'm. You know, that, that that was from my own observations. 
But um, as I said, for the, the three times I met him and spoke to him, I found him very educated, very interesting. Um, and um, he, he loved Ireland and he loved Skull in particular. And did he like history? Yeah, very much so. I think he told me a story one time when he was in England as a journalist that he had met Princess Diane. Now, not shook hands with her or anything, but he, he was in the company where she was. Um, he seemed to have, he rattled off a couple of names of people that he would have come across while he was doing journalism in England. I found that quite interesting. Um, and he'd have it fluent off, you know, he'd m- mention so many different people and, you know, but he'd always bring back into West Cork and how he liked West Cork and, you know, um, how how his life has changed since he came to Ireland. He always said, like, London was a very busy place and Ireland was so easy going and Skull was such a lovely place and the people were lovely and he loved where he lived and he, like, his, his thing, his, his last thing to me was that, what I can recall, Mick, was that um, he, I'd love to die in Skull. You know that kind of way. So he was really very attached to them, to where he lived. You know, okay. and his environment. I'm yeah. very aware. Okay, those those meetings and those observations are coincidental because we were go- uh, planning to talk to you this morning, not on Ian Bailey, but on childhood memories uh, of the Middle Parish. Tell me a little bit about this. A glimpse of Cork's wonderful characters of the late sixties. Yeah, it, it was a great time. I'll be honest with you, Mick. You know. Looking at Cork today, a lot of changes, you know, a lot of things I'd like to see different, um, you know, but uh, anyone could see this coming like that, the way things were going in Cork, well, businesses closing and changes. It goes way back to the 80s, you know, when, when things, when Woolworths and places like that start to close down. That was the, the, that was the first um, big recession, really, wasn't it? It was, because you had Fords and Dunlops, and they were catastrophic, and thousands of jobs went, you know, and it was very, very sad, because the city, it was a bit of a doom and gloom period, like anyone that lived through the 80s, like, would, you know, like, it, it, we reflect back to the 60s, there was a different type of recession, it was a, a recession, a shortage of money, and things were different, and tenements, and all that kind of thing, you know, but people got on with it, but the 80s, like, when people just started to pick up, and then this hit us, you know, and the, the closing of Dunlops and Fords, and then we had department stores closing down and changing hands. Things changed in the city, but growing up in the city in the cold care was the hub, Mick. You know, we, um, as children, we loved it. You know, you had the dealers, you had people. It was a very, very busy thoroughfare. It was a beautiful place to grow up as a child, you know. Mm. Catty Barry was a, a great character, you know. Even though we were very young, like, she treated us very kind, you know. She made candy apples there, you'd buy them for a penny, and... When you were young, you'd always made a few bob, you know, because you had the waste paper store there and people, you know, you'd always, there was messenger boys. There there was, like, for young kids growing up after school, you'd always pick up something to do. But the cold kid, the Holy Joe, the Andy Gods, like, looking back, they were there for a reason. And the reason being television wasn't there. And if it was, it was only just at the beginning. So, like, people were on the streets, people were out and about, and even when television did come in, I always remember Jennings's, which burned down in the in the Grand Parade. You had people standing outside the shop windows at night, watching the television. You know, queues because people didn't have televisions at home. That's right. And um, it, they, they were exciting times. And like, believe it or not, like it was like the pictures. Well, to, in Jennings's, our Madden's, our our slot television, our RTV rentals, it, like people would have spots. You know. And if he stood into that spot, you know, <laughs> if he shoved out, that's my place, you know. That's, that's my spot on the public footpath. Yeah. yeah, some of the shops would have sound and some of them wouldn't. Oh, so, so, some of them would have a speaker outside the door for the, for the football yeah. match. Oh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was absolutely, you had the shows like Mr. Red and Car 54 and, 
you know, they were tremendous shows. Like, you know, we had only one station at the time, but we had a massive variety of shows, you know, and a lot of them were coming in from America, as you know. And um, there were some great, and now there was home shows. We had home productions as well, you know, like Maureen Potter and stuff like that. But um, the, the, the majority of the ones that were coming in were, were all American, and people loved them, especially Mr. Red now and stuff like that, you know. And um, as I said, with Holy Joe and Andy Gaw and, you know, Caddy Barry with the last three there, this is the 100th story you now I just finished. And we're working on a new one there now at the moment, the Monster Arcade. Because uh, I worked there as a young lad and I have great memories of the Monster Arcade, which is now Penny's, by the way, but as people would know. But, um, you know, my, uh, my, it was a great, it was like, I was even talking to, um, you know, the Shawleys there and all the girls that do the reenactments. What, what, were, the con- know, and, the, what uh, were the Connie Shores? Uh, the Connie Shores, they, 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 there wasn't many of them there now, Mick. There was a handful, but they, the Connie Shores are ones that had a little bit of gossip, you know, and... Um, you know it, <laughs> that hasn't died down that's still there today but that was the kind of a name that was the it was a affectionate name for them you know Connie Shores you know she's a Connie Shore you know one would have a story about someone you know that someone done something you know but it was all innocent stuff Mick you know it, it was a different generation it was, it was and it was you know we all like to harken back to nostalgic times but there is the sense that you know winters were warmer summers were were brighter uh, everybody got on with each other. The, the Cold K was a nostalgic and great community-spirited place. Uh, was, it, was it a kind of a sense of we're all in this together rather than the dog-eat-dog rat race which seems to have developed in Irish society these oh, days? 100%, Mick, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the latter you said, the 100%, yeah. It, it was all about sharing. Even these young lads, like, you know, we, we all shared. We all got on. Like, I'd never heard, like, violence in my time was unheard of, you know? Um, like you'd never hear of an old person being broken into or you'd never hear of house break-ins when I was a young kid and if there were there were very far and few between you know and I put the clean sheet in the dirty bed like said everything was perfect but it was a far better way to, it was a far better life growing up as a, as a young kid I never felt unsafe you know I never heard my parents feeling unsafe my grandmother lived till she was 96 she never felt unsafe you know people got about their business it, a lot of it Mike, Mike was sharing you know I lived in a tenement you know I grew up in a tenement in Queen's Place you know Clarksbridge and you know the people in there like we had midwives everybody looked out for each other you know like four of my siblings were born at home now that wouldn't happen today like unless somebody had professional people around them but in those days it was quite common that babies were brought into the world at home and the midwives were excellent we had, we had Mrs. Barry and Mrs. O'Sullivan and fortune tellers were very big at the time as well I remember Gypsy Lee outside there in um, Blackpool and I remember people, Gypsy like, Lee it was, yeah it was all innocent stuff but it, like people reading tea leaves and you know they, 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 I'll be honest with you Mick the church played a huge part as well like in the life of the people they had great faith you know I, I remember General Tom Barry used to come up to my grandmother because she was the next coming among woman and um, he, he'd walk in the height room you know he you know, the suit, and that time he lived over Wolf of Bordens with his wife, and um, she was a very interesting lady as well, by the way. I had the pleasure of meeting her a few times, but um, when he'd come around, you know, Dom Dom, which would have been Holy Joe's sister, she played what we used to call the box, and she'd come up and she'd play some tune. She was blind in one eye, and she lived in a basement in, in, in Queen's Place, you know, and she'd come up and play some tunes with Tom Barry. And um, Tom was a very, like, as kids now, he, he would just 
Salute is coming in, you know, we never had conversation or anything. But we knew he was a very important man, you know. And it's only when I got older I realised how important he was. But so, when, when you look at the characters like like, like Holy Joe, Holy Joe uh, and Cathy Barry and Andy Gough, for, for instance, I, I, I know of, but I, I don't, I'm not conversing with the full history and, uh, uh, you know, of the, the magic pennies and this kind of thing. Could you give us a bit of detail on, on, on Andy Gough? Yeah, and, and, and the guy was like, I'll be honest with you, you know, when I was, when I was younger than young, I was terrified of him. I don't know why he just, he'd come at you and you'd jump back from him. And a lot of people had that experience with him. But it was his way of being jovial, but I didn't understand that. I, I was a little bit too young. But as I got a little bit older, he got to know me, I got to know him. And amazingly, he had a, an unbelievable memory. And he mainly stayed towards the city. Now, as a young boy, he was an altar boy in St. Francis, and you'd get work in the weekend. So mine was the penny dinners. And you'd meet an awful lot of characters going in there. The women wouldn't go in there. They'd stand outside with a thing called a billy can. And Brother Leo would go out and fill that for Mary the Boxes was one. Mary the Cats was another. She was a very famous woman. She she fed all the cats in Christchurch. But Andy Gaw stayed within the city circle. He, he didn't actually move outside Castle Street, the Cold Cay, the Grand Parade, like that was his territory he never kind of went, ventured off Holy Joe was different Holy Joe you could find him anywhere Holy Joe you could like he could he could be out in Glashing Road even but yeah. I'm not saying he used to go out that far but he, Dennis, I'm, I'm not not going to do I'm not going to do this conversation justice in the remaining time to us, which is about five seconds, uh, until I need to go for news. So, would you mind joining me after eleven? I, I've got a list of uh, of some nicknames here and some characters of Cork, and we might take a, a trip down memory road and, and have a little chat after eleven. Can we? Too delighted. Only okay. too delighted, Mike. Too All right, Dennis. Delighted. Thank you. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters. And we're rejoined on the line by uh, Dennis Coffey. Uh, back to you, Dennis. How are you? Sorry, Dennis. Are you there? Hello, Mick. Okay. Th- thank you for holding because we weren't going to have enough time uh, to cover everything that was going on. I was asking about Andy Gore. Now, just to be specific, I know he gave pennies, but was he getting them from other people? Yeah. What would happen, really, you'd be with your parents when you were very young and they would give him something in return. It was a kind of um, an, an exchange, you know. He never put the hand out for money to anybody, but people just gave it to him. But in saying that, then, Mick, he gave it back out again. You know, when you come to think of that, you are 240 pennies in the pound. Uh, that was a lot. And with a penny that time, like, you could buy a range of things in the cold care. As I said, with Catty Barry's uh, candy apples, like, you know, they were just flying off the shelves. But, like, he, he would give out an amount of money. Now, the, it, it became the magic penny because someone came up with the idea, if you put it on your pillow, you get another one tomorrow. So, <laughs> now, that, <laughs> that would be a very hard thing to do, Mick, because money was scarce. And when you got a penny from Andy Gaw, you valued it. And you went off and you bought bonbons or ligris, you see. We had a lot of huckster shops that time. Um, in Shear Street, I think there were around Shear Street, Washington Street, uh, Henry Street, you had about maybe 16 huckster shops, as we call them. And they all sold a variety of sweets. And that time there was no wrappers, as you know, everything was loose. And that's just the way it was, you know. But um, Andy, like, he, he, as I said, he, he was a, we were blessed to have characters like that. Now, we mightn't have understood it back then, but now we do. They played a vital part in the whole cog of the wheel and everything that went within the city life, you know. They were really, really great people. We, I don't know that we value, value them enough back then. Now, I never seen anybody 
do anything to harm any of these people. Now, there'd be innocent fun, like Cody Joe had a famous pigeon hat hat, and we were, as kids, we would try to grab it, you know, and he'd, 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 he'd give us a volley of language, you know, but, that you was, know, he, he knew every one of us. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was we part of the game, wasn't it? It was, yeah, and, and he, like, he knew every one of us, and he knew where we lived. Amazingly enough, like he had a, 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 an unbelievable memory. But like Mary, the cats was a very unusual woman as well because of the women. Like she fed the cats, the cats in Christchurch, which is now Bishop Lucy Park. Now, if you went there in the in the early days in the sixties, there were hundreds of cats. Mick, I'm not, I'm not, not ones or twos, and they were all wild. And she used to get fish eggs over in the market and feed them. You know, there's Mary the Boxes, there's Johnny Papers, you know, you stick the papers onto the cars. These were all, you know, the, to us, these were legends. Yeah, you but know, the, the famous, the famous Catty Barry, the, the queen of the cold cake, uh, not, not only did she have her candy apples, of course, she had kind of a halfway house, she had kind of a drinking house, didn't she? Yeah, it was like, for the ones with better ward, affectionately, it was a little house of disrepute. But... We, 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 we put that aside. It, it was a little entertainment venue. It's where people went after hours for a drink. There was a sing song. Those things went on. You know, people have wrote things about Catty Barry and uh, our halfway house down through the years, you know. Some were correct and some were not correct. You know, it was a place for people to go. It was a social gathering. Uh, you could hear the singing on the outside, you know. Um, as young kids, we'd, we'd go down. There was a little laying way into it and you could hear the singing and people were going there for a bottle of stout obviously there was no draft in our place it was all bottles you know she she was a like I had seen photographs of her in her early days she was a a, 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 a beautiful woman someone told my grandmother told me once that she had been offered by someone that was at the film uh, over at some film show in Cork to would she go to Hollywood now that my grandmother would have no reason to lie so that you know that'll tell you the type of woman she was she was supposed to have been a, a beautiful woman in her heyday you know but um, a very nice person, you know, I never... As kids, you see a Mick growing up around that area, everybody seemed to, to me, seemed to be friendly. You know, it's society has changed so much today. Of course, you wouldn't see an older person giving cash to a strange child or a stranger's child now. Oh, no, 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 like nor would you see know. the child accepting it. No, no, to be quite different today now. Things have gone changed, you know. Society has changed. No, some, some things for the better, but some things for the worst, you know. Like, I mean, to say, as I said, I'd never heard of a house breaking growing up. You know, people would leave the keys in the doors, you know. When people moved from the middle parish eventually, no, they didn't want to move, by the way. These were compulsory orders. Mm-hmm. Like, people were quite, even though the tenements were hard to live in, like, no, there's no, there was outside, out, outdoor toilets and taps and stuff like that. They didn't have the modern conveniences of today, but they got on with it. People actually didn't want to leave their pride. You know, one woman, one woman had to be physically removed from Queen's Place. She didn't want to leave, you know. Like, for them, going to the north side of the city or Balafihan was, was miles away because they had everything within the city centre. You know, they, they had the churches, they had the, they had the shops, they had the social side. And it was a very big social gathering, you know. Uh, the, the priest in St. Francis provided halls like St. Anthony's Hall and places like that to be plays and stuff on the weekend, you know. But the characters of Cork, you know, we were blessed to have them, you know. Um, these people, like, you know, today I'm writing the history on them today and I'm delighted I'm able to do it and I have the memory to do it, you know. Um, as I said, I'm up to my 100th story, you know, and and that's continuing. And that's only over one area, Mick. Yeah, my my great grandmother, my great grandmother was a shawley, I believe, uh, on on the cocaine. My mum worked in uh, in guys, which I think, I think they were gumming envelopes or something back in the day. Uh, I know my mother-in-law Olive worked from from fifteen years of age. My mother-in-law worked with uh, Barry's Tea, 
different days now. Can can I run through some of the uh, some some of the old characters and nicknames uh, and stop me if if you know one or can comment? All right, there's one here, Jackie the Bell, who's supposed to be a bus conductor. Uh, I've got a friend called Jackie the Bell who was a roadie with the Who and a postman, but that's a, is that a different Jackie the Bell? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a hundred. No, I, I, I've heard of the, I've heard of the, of the name, um, and has been brought up. No, personally, personally, because we lived in the middle parish, make we wouldn't have been using public transport. There was no need. So that name would have come, we'd say, probably from people that moved to the north side or moved to Balfihan, right? So they would have chosen their character. You see, as they went, as they left the city, make they created char- characters to where they went to live. Okay. So while the Holy Joes and the Catty Barrys and the Andy Gauss were Mary the Boxes, Mary the Cats were left in the city, when the people moved out to Balfihan and when they moved up to the north side, you know, they started, characters started coming out of those areas. Yeah, exactly. So, A slitter maker you named know what I mean? Leather Dick. Yeah. Balls of Twine. <clears throat> Nora the Donkey. Yes. Uh, the Flasher, the Rancher. Connie Balty. There was a Tina Turner. What's the story with her, I wonder? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she, she, yeah. no, like today, like they had a description that time, like they would say, why not? I know I don't, I don't like that terminology, to be honest with you. But I remember Tina Turner. I do, of course, yeah. And she used to be singing. And like there was Hercules. He, he was a famous guy in the Colquay. He would be sitting on the bed in nails and he'd have a big whip. And you'd have hundreds of people around him, especially on a Saturday. It was a Saturday he used to perform a little act. He was a small blocky guy. He originally worked in a circus. Now, you mentioned the rancher there. I knew the rancher, yeah. He was, he was another character. And um, the Hercules was a kind of a famous guy because he'd get people to stand on his chest then he'd break bottles, he'd put them on the ground and he'd lie in them, you know. And, you know, it was a huge show. Like, you yeah. know, you'd have the, the cold cable come to a standstill when Hercules came along and he had a huge whip and he'd crack it, you know. And I'm trying to imagine some of these with, characters here. Tubs of Blood, Bellows to Mend, Tom Pepper, Darby and Joan. I've heard that before. Darby and Joan. What, yeah. what, what's the story there? Well, you see, well, you see, uh, make not just referring to those two in particular. The majority of the nicknames came from the Dockers as well. The Dockers had top of the egg, show me your fridge, you know, come out and fight me, pig in the river, shake me shirk. The Dockers created hundreds because because of double names. You see, when, when people were born at a certain time, they'd be Johns, they'd be Michaels. You could have ten Michaels. You could have five Johns. You could have four Marys. See, the names were different as well. They were all called after either the Apostles or Saints. The names have changed today. Yes. You know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the present names. Chewing Gum Charlie wasn't named after a saint or an apostle. Neither was Dickie Lou. Yeah. Yeah, you see, the, yeah, but you see, the, yeah, the, the nicknames then came onto these people for the way that they lived or what they'd done. It was affectionate names, you know. So the Dockers really created, uh, like Brass Hass, he was, in the, he was in the band, so he got that name. And, you know, like Show Me Your Fridge, I thought was a, a hilarious one because they got their first fridge and he was a set of the something in the docks and he ended up with that name. Another time a pig fell into the river, this guy jumped in to save him and for the rest of his life he was called Pig in the River. So, like, the... the, the um, the, 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 the nicknames the nicknames um, revolved and you know in, in some cases people didn't even know what nickname they were called that's, that's, know, the, 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 the pig in the river is slightly better than the one I heard from West Cork when somebody was caught in a shall we say compromising position with a sheep and from that day to this he's known as Johnny Bo Peep yeah. I'm going to have to leave it there as, 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 as pleasurable as it is to uh, be nostalgic and take a walk down memory lane. It has been a pleasure talking to you, Dennis Coffey. Where can people access your stories? 
Well, the, the, the most of them, I, I put them up on Facebook, Mike. Like, there's a great friend of mine there, Sandy Murphy, or Sandy Connell Murphy. She's at me there to do a book, and Richard T. Cook. Uh, there's a lot of people at me at the moment to, to write a book, you know. All my stuff was mostly up in the old photographs of Cork City and County. I put them up there free, but I, I think I owe it to the city now not to make money out of this, because I'm nothing to that, to bring out something, because the memories are, are special, and these characters are special, and, you know, they've done our city a great service, you know. I would like to see some of the shops, you know, in the city. I hate to go through Parker Street now okay. and see them closed. I, you know, but make before I leave, I could say this. I, I think really, and I don't want to get into the commercial side of it now, I think we should have a free bus service into the city between 10 and 12, Friday, Saturday and Sunday to get the footfall back because our city is going to crumble. The rates are too high. People can't cope. Restaurants closing down. It's going to be too late. We've got to do something now. We've got to get people back into our city. It's a beautiful city. No matter where you go in the world, the great pride of any 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 country is their city. And at the moment, Cork at the moment is falling down on that. All right. And they're not blaming anybody personally. But yeah, it was, a, it was a big chestnut on last week's program. So, we, so we, we thank you for the ideas. Something has to yeah. be done. So uh, thank Dennis you. Coffee. Have a good day. Thank you and good morning. Patrick Murphy's holding for quite some time and I'll be with Patrick directly. Call Neil now. 0818 104 The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. This is Mick Mulcahy. Patrick Murphy, welcome to the programme and thank you for holding for so long. How are you, sir? I'm not too bad, Mick, and it's really good to talk to you again. I know we're talking about a different subject into the fisheries or running for Europe. But, yeah, just, uh, ju- just to refresh people, um, people m- may remember me speaking twice previously on the programme to Patrick Murphy. Uh, a very emotive and heartfelt interview on both occasions about the state of our fishing industry. And maybe we can wrap up in a few minutes' time with, uh, with all of that. Uh, but we, you're here to talk about uh, Ian Bailey, and you're taking qu- quite a different... Uh, stands from most of the contributors by text or by phone call today to uh, Ian Bailey's passing. Yeah, look, it's, it's it's not right to speak ill of the dead, but I do want to understand, people to understand I lived in the area. I was there when this happened. So it completely changed our way of life living in, in the Mizzen Peninsula at that time where people had safety of leaving keys underneath the doormat or keys even welded into the door. That all changed. The security element came in. People were locking up. They were afraid. I'll give one story, Mick, when I was travelling home from work and these young fellas flagged me down and I pulled in and they were in a panic. Do you know what? They were in a panic. This is now a couple of days after the murder because they were being followed up and down the road by a car. And then I realised it was Special Branch. And I said it to them. I said, Leisure, it's bad enough to be terrorised, but we're being terrorised here. But I, I don't agree with the sentiment about this man and I'll explain why. I got a lift back from Castletown Bear one time by Jules Thomas and she was wearing sunglasses because she had a black eye. That was in 1999. So this man was a serial uh, woman beater and proven. So to say that he was a nice guy and it was this, don't mix the two up. The man himself, the man that I knew, was not a nice guy. Definitely not. Regardless of whether he was proven for murder. He changed our lives in the Mizzen Peninsula as far as I'm concerned. There's a whole lot of stories that people don't realise that we in the local area do know. And I spoke to a local police officer to get the skinny on what happened there. And the reason being is that we ran a youth centre for five years in our local village voluntary, myself and a couple of others. And the local guard had ran it previously, so we'd often meet and talk about things. And that topic of conversation came up. And look, there was an awful lot of mistakes made by the guardie at that time. But from living locally in the area, uh, like my wife pointed out, 
this was really, really remote. Like, you couldn't find this place unless you knew where you were going. So if people look at what was told in the stories, uh, you'll understand why there was question marks. How did the individual find that place so quickly? And what were the circumstances? Yeah, we're talking about an era now before Google Maps or postcodes or anything like that. Absolutely. like, And as I said, my wife, even with Google Maps and stuff, was curious to go there. She had a young girl that, that asked, you know, you're living in the area, would you show us the place? It's like, you know, again, that just shows how things have changed, that you would have a murder site as being a tourist attraction for people that would come over to look at it. So that this has had a huge dramatic effect on our community, so much so now that it's divided and that people are on one side or the other. But for somebody to say that a fella, a hitman was after coming over from France and wear a French beret and walk up and down the town of, 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 of Skull, you know, it wouldn't bode well for a professional hitman. No. And then there was other stories. Yeah, go on. No, it, it, it wouldn't. I, I heard that story about a would-be assassin flying into Belfast and taking a car down to West Cork and uh, escaping the country the following day. That was one of the stories. Yeah, and as I said, look, we've other information ourselves. My wife worked in the post office there, and, and Ian Bale used to come in regular. He'd come in and sign on the door, like that. That was his main part of his income. Once the fish factory that was employing 200 people closed down, but again, that's another story. Another story, yep. Yeah. So, like, maybe if the fish factory stayed open, we might be having a different conversation. But anyway, we, we, you know, the, the, these are the realities of life now at the moment. Look, what happened was tragic. What happened to that woman was horrific. The way that that girl was murdered was horrific. You know, you, you couldn't imagine it. It was an animal, an animal that did that. So you'd have to look at previous and past behavior and to see was that individual capable. Well, look at the pictures to Jules Thomas. They're in the public eye. So, you know, and there's a lot more information. But what I would say is stop saying that this man was a good man and a lovely man. He certainly was not. And I don't think Jules Thomas would agree with that, either the beatings that he gave her. And that's the, that's that's what I would say here. Regardless of whether he was proven as a murderer, that will, I'd say, be debated for time and time again in memorial until the evidence is brought out. But trust me, from what I was told and the information I got and the information that he gave to my wife in the post office would tell a different tale. And that's the truth. So, look, it was what, my what, wife... Why wasn't that information then, then examined? It was hearsay. You okay. see, it's always, it was to do with the bottle of wine and where it came from. Right, but so, and, and, and another question, maybe as a local you, you, you could answer, is why Sophie Toscan de Plantier walked from the house uh, and not ran away from the house. She walked down towards the gate... It kind of give me the impression that she knew her, her, her attacker. Well, I'd have a different theory on that. I don't think it started down there, the assault. I think she ran out of the house in fear. And if you're running from somebody, you don't run up a hill, you run right, down Right, OK, a hill. that's fair enough, yeah. So, so you're, in, you're in flight mode, you're trying to get out. Like, I know the details of this because I was told, and I'm not going to say it in there, it's too horrific. OK, and look, I, and, and, and this isn't the day, the time, the place for speculation no, either. No, definitely not. Uh, would you, do, not we just want, what well, I would say we want to stick to Ian, if possible. stop glorifying a man that beats up women. Okay, I, I don't think we glorified him. I don't think we called no, him you, good. Not you, no, 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 yeah. no. There was, the, and I'll explain why. There's a very hard-working politician Mick, in our area called Michael Collins, and he put up a post that he remembered Sophie Tuscan de Plante on this day, right? Because it is they were both linked, and he was savaged first, and I think that's wrong. So to glorify the man that was beating up his partner, and without question that he admitted to his eternal shame. And to say that in any shape or form that this poor man, absolutely not. He, the, the question of the murder is in question. The question of beating up women is not. 
And nobody, nobody should say somebody that does that to a woman, no matter what, is a nice guy. Not a hope. Not in my book. Okay, and of course she was murdered in such a remote place. It would be extremely difficult to find. It is. But sure, anybody themselves, have a look at it. And to come from where he came from that day. And look, I say again, we're not to debate it, but the the evidence is is there if people want to look at it. And as I said, I have more information from talking to the local guards. They did not cover themselves in glory, but I have fierce respect for the local lads that are there now at the moment. And it's wrong to carry forward the sins and the misbehaviour of others to tar the, the rest of the guards with that. So we have new force. These are young men and women joining our forces, right? They're from our families. They're Irish people and not new people coming into the force. And, you know, they're trying to do a job. It's They're getting poor pay, poor conditions. That's why it's very hard to get lads to go in there. And with this, we want more guards in, in, in our um, services. And it would not help to be blackening them in the way I've heard them being blackened now. Yes, there was a few bad apples, but there's a few bad apples everywhere, Mick. So I'd hate to think that the guards themselves would be tarnished, the overall force, with this. As would I, because if, if a ball was dropped, it was dropped a quarter of a century ago. Yes, absolutely. So, like, you know, but, but they should learn from it. Oh, definitely. I hope they have learned from the mistakes that were made that day, and they were horrific, even as it was said, a gate was lost. Like, that is an, an amazing thing to happen, but it did happen. For somebody to say that it was done on purpose, that means that every single one of the guards in the West Cork area were complicit in hiding evidence. Now, I wouldn't believe that for a second. No. I believe um, there was massive mistakes made I don't I, I, on all sides. Um, but to say, to insinuate, as I heard on the show, that, you know, this was done on purpose, absolutely not. Rubbish. All right, OK. I say to that. OK, we, we, we leave it there. Do you, do you want to give me a quick minute or two on the state of the fishing industry now that I have you? Yeah, with, there's be- a report that came out from Board B there now that tells the story about our industry. And, and I just want to remind people, we have the richest fishing grounds in Europe. We have the best fish farming grounds in Europe and the best farms and the best way of farming. Please stop listening to the rubbish that you're being told. It's not true. We have the resources. If we were invaded, we wouldn't stand for it. Just because we're being invaded by the pen doesn't mean we should accept it. We were robbed, as far as I'm concerned, of our fishing resources. We will be robbed of our farming resources, all done by regulation. There are deals being done with the likes of Brazil to bring in massive amounts of beef into Europe and then cripple us at home and the, and the only way that, that we see that being done is that they're blackening boat industries and what I would say is this we can prove categorically that there's no overfishing going on in the European Union bar in the mackerel where they're overfishing it because the likes of Norway and Iceland and Greenland are taking far more than the original deals and they're, they're, they're crucifying us So what, what progress for your cause Patrick since we last spoke? Well well, you see, we've, I've been in Copenhagen now talking with the control and enforcement agencies. I've taken up the role as chairman of the focus group on that particular subject in the Northwest Waters Advisory Council. So we have to learn the law. We have to go through the new regulations and we try and make sure that they are enforced in a, a level playing pitch way so that our state doesn't interpret the law incorrectly that crucifies us. And that's happening. We have a boat that adhered to the law, brought in the fish under the landing obligation, yet it's still inside in the courtroom on another charge. So we have boats that are being told in 6A that uh, the fish is caught and there's bycatches. This is really complicated. So we're fighting that. We're like solicitors inside in a courtroom trying to bring up the legal. We need to bring that to Europe. 
Okay. The people that are there don't understand the legalities of this. It takes years to, to, to gather that information. That That's what I have done, Mick, to be honest with you. But we're not being represented. And I'll explain it like this. Brexit was an extraordinary event. It was never foreseen. There was no legal structure behind it. So the only way that they did what they did was they brought in the legal structure. And the people that brought that in were our politicians. And to say that Europe did it is not correct because they had to sign up to it. And what they signed up to was criminal. They gave away our rights to fish in our own waters. 85% of the fish is being given to other countries. And we have a legal right to take that back under the United Nations laws of the sea and migrating stocks. The country closest to the resource has the first right to catch that fish. That is a legal right, international right. But because we're part of Europe, and if people say he's wrong, I can prove to you how you're right. Because when the UK left, look how much fish they got back. When they were inside in Europe, they didn't have the legal rights. Once they left, those rights were returned to them, and that's how they got all the fish. The problem is, is that Europe is using their numbers over Ireland to crucify us, and we should be walking away from it. We should be demanding a review of the common fishery policy because it's failed, because the sustainability of the stocks. And to blame the people with the smallest share for the stocks not being sustainable is incorrect. How can we do damage when we've the lowest amount? It's the guys with all the fish that are doing the damage, and that's the facts. It sounds like Even something. Europe, sounds like something, Patrick. Yeah, well, that 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 could be a good topic for prime time investigates. They, they've been asked. <laughs> <laughs> they've been asked several several times. Like we had a deal now with 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 the, the likes of uh, Denmark with the Commission, and this is most recent, where the Danes were we challenged them. Ireland challenged them in the courtrooms that the twelve thousand tons that they were getting before Brexit was no longer applicable to them and legal to them, and that was proved in the courtrooms. So that meant that fish should have gone back into the pool where we would have got 50% of it, 6,000 tonnes. Instead, we've ended up with 1,500 tonnes. So how did we misnegotiate that? That's where we have the challenge. And it wasn't challenged. And yet, if you read the papers and the stuff and the press releases, sure, we did a great deal. We did a great deal, yeah. But it seems to me that you're gearing up legally now and knowledge-wise to tackle this, yeah? Yeah, but you have to do it from inside, Mick, because like I don't have in my organisation, don't have the millions anymore. I have people coming up the stairs in my office now saying, with boats worth millions, we want out. Can you imagine? Can you imagine anybody that would have a successful business that could make as much money as they could dream of if they were allowed in the richest waters in the world? And instead they're saying, do you know what? We have to give it up. We're not making enough money to pay our crews, pay the diesel bills and whatever else. This is the reality of it. And that's, that system is wrong. When the laws say that this country closest to the resource should be protected. We're losing our industry. We had 400 boats in 2004 fishing off our coastline, Irish boats. That's down to just over 100 now. That's, that, that's in 20 years. And that's, 20 the, years that's the litmus lost. test. That's the reality that's of it. That's the litmus test. Yeah, it's yeah. A, and it's people need to understand that if you have people knocking on your door telling you that they're fighting for you in Europe, ask them that question. Did you vote for us? Did you sign off in this? Do you agree with this giveaway? Because if they give away this in our fishing industry, farming, I promise you, is next. And even though they hide behind laws like the nature restoration and the panic, well, in Davos, there was this man that said, growing rice is wrong because flooding the fields kills the weeds. They uh, create um, methane then from when they rot, which is correct. And it, to, to show that to people, if you're ever walking along the beach and there's seaweed up on the beach and it's rotting, you'll smell it. You'll smell the methane, right? Mm. So that's nature. So then, on the other hand, we have our politicians telling you, well, we'll flood the bogs. And sure, if you walk along the bogs, you'll see bubbles coming up through the bog. That's methane. That's 
life, life. Instead, what we should have done when we took cut away the bogs in the Midlands, we should have grown food like every other country. We should have been feeding the world. We had the infrastructure and the railway tracks to carry that food. This is common sense. And we can't even grow a bag of sugar in our own country. That's right. Stop you're, listening pa- to Patrick, the that's you, being said to you. You're a very knowledgeable person. What about Patrick Murphy, MEP? Well, there you go. You see, this is what I'm saying, is I believe that we have a legal right to challenge these things in Europe under the treaties. I genuinely believe. But who's doing it? Will you run for so office? Who's asking it? And this is common sense. Oh, I am absolutely running. And hopefully the boats, that what's left of them will come up the river again just to show people what we said was correct, that we're not talking nonsense, that everything we do is well thought out and teased out and legality-wise. And this is why we have challenges. This is why we have to go into a courtroom. We have to find it out. Imagine this now. We're back to Ian Bailey. Ian Bailey was not prosecuted because he wasn't criminalised without evidence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That doesn't apply to fishermen. Fishermen now are prosecuted on the balance of probabilities. So a whole change to the law, and we fought this, and one of our TDs went up into the Dáil, local TD, and castigated our minister for doing this. And then at the end of his speech, he turned around and he said, but I'm not going to lose the whip. I'm going to vote it in with you. That's the problem. That's turncoat politics, isn't it? Are you you going to run yourself? Did you say yes or no? Oh, I am. I'm running as an MEP under okay. the in 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 June. I have no choice. Oh, I, I see. I honestly didn't know that. I wasn't giving you an advert there. I was just making oh, no, a suggestion. No, no, no. Well, it's good to clarify that. No, yes, I yeah. am running. All I, right, Patrick. I, I, I felt, thank you very much. You're a very, very knowledgeable person. It's always brilliant to talk it. to you. Sorry, say Here's say me. again. Thank you. Say that Take again. Care. Anybody that wants to loan me their vote, they don't have to change their politics. But if they want to see something different, if they want to see somebody who's in Europe that's already fighting for them, and we've proven that by keeping the Norwegians out behind the 12-degree line, when we told the European Commission for the first time in their history, they cannot walk all over us. And that's why we're fighting to keep out the Icelandics as well, too. It's not a bad election uh, election mantra, actually. Loan me your vote, give me a chance. Absolutely. All right, Patrick. If you don't like what you see there and you want to change it, I guarantee you I am that change. And I've proven it in the last number of years. You can check me out. And I'm involved in my community up to the eyeballs. And uh, I am passionate about our people and our rights. And this giveaway mentality for Ireland has to stop because it's hurting us. Okay, I can't give away any more time, but it's always great to talk to you. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. Good morning. Cheers. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters. And a very good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. Now, complete change of direction, but a very, very engaging story nonetheless. Good morning, Ethna. Hi, good morning. Hi, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. All right, your story is remarkable. Now, you were at a wedding and you felt a little bit sick. Was it first in your teeth you felt your teeth weren't right or something? Yeah, I had been out um, dancing with my niece and as I was walking off the floor, I just got... Uh, pain in all my teeth not just a tooth, all my teeth and I went off to my husband and I said God I, I just got terrible pains in my teeth and we were like oh, we didn't know what to make of it and then a couple of minutes later I, I kind of felt very hot and a bit agitated um, so I, I said we'll go up to the room so okay. we, we went up to the, the room and as I walked in the door, I just went straight into the bathroom and started uh, getting sick. 
so I just thought, oh great, I'll just feel better now. Once that's out, that's obviously what is wrong. And, and what was going through your mind? Maybe a little food poisoning? Maybe I had an extra glass of well, wine? I was or? thinking, yeah, that, that's pretty much, I thought it was something that I had eaten, that I, because I had overindulged. I was at a wedding, you know, um, and that's exactly what I thought. And I said, have I been poisoned? And <laughs> But I said, once it was out, at least I was going to feel better. Yeah. So um, then, then my teeth started hurting me again. And I went, what is that? As I'm getting sick. And who's who's with you at this chest. stage? Your, your husband with my you? My husband. Yeah, my husband. And like he was kind of holding my hair and rubbing my back. And then I got the pain in my chest and I started crying. And I said, no, I'm after pulling something um, in my chest on top of all this from getting sick. So he said he was going to ring Kieran, my brother, who was also at the wedding and he's a paramedic and there was a bit of toing and froing, don't ring him and he was saying, No, I'm going to ring him and I was saying, I'm fine, I'll get into bed, I'll be okay, it'll pass. So he rang Karen. He just ignored me and he rang Karen and Karen came up and he asked me what was going on and I said my teeth were sore, I was getting sick, now I'm after pulling something in my chest. So he said, okay. And I heard him saying to Chris, see, can you get an aspirin? And I was kind of thinking that aspirin wasn't going to stop me from getting sick because mm-hmm. I know what aspirin is for. But the penny didn't drop what this was. So um, he said, listen, I, I, I'll ring an ambulance there and just get them to have a quick look at you. And I said, do not ring the ambulance. Like, I said, this is getting embarrassing. You're at, you're at a wedding. The, la- the last thing, and even though you're in pain, yeah, the last thing you want to do is cause a commotion. Exactly. And I was saying, could we be a little bit discreet about this, you know? So he rang them. They came up to me, um, hooked me up to the CG. Penny still didn't drop with me. And... Then I kind of, you know, there, there wasn't commotion because there was no big dramatic, except it was lovely and calm. So I was saying it couldn't be anything major. And then, because, like, you're, the pain in my chest, it was You're on an ECG with a pain in your chest? Yeah, but, like, I didn't. Sure, I'm not medical. There was no big, massive pain in my chest down my arm, me rolling around the floor. There was nothing like that. So, um... The next day I was saying, am I? <laughs> so I said, am I having a heart attack? And she said, look, we'll pack you up and we'll bring you up to the CUH and we'll get you checked out. So I said, okay. So I asked the girl then, could I change out of my clothes? Because I even felt that my clothes were too tight and I felt a bit claustrophobic in my clothes. So she helped me change out of my clothes um, into just the leggings and a T-shirt and... I don't know what happened after that. Okay. Obviously, that's been when I went into cardiac arrest. All right, let's and let's bring Kieran in. Let, let's bring yeah. Kieran in here and and bring him up to this timeline in the story. Hi, Kieran. Yeah. Hi, Mick Hortings. And good. How lucky was she that her brother-in-law is a, is a paramedic? A brother or brother-in-law? Brother. Brother. A brother is a as a paramedic uh, and is at the wedding downstairs. So of course you 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 got the call from her husband. You darted straight up the stairs. When did you know? Um, uh, what she didn't know. I suppose, Mick, as soon as I saw her on the floor, 
this, this, the, what she was presenting with and uh, what I saw I knew that uh, you know she, she, there was potential that she was going to be in a lot of trouble you know so as she was saying there I, I rang the ambulance and um, luckily the y'all ambulance crew Kira and Tommy they were, they were close enough they were like by Middleton and, and they got down to us fairly quick you know um, so we looked up, up to the ECG monitor and we could see straight away that she was having a she was she was having a heart attack as we as we were talking to her, you know. So we told her what the plan was that we needed to get her up to Clark, up to the CPH in the PCI lab. And um so we stood out. Uh, as she was saying she went, just wanted to change her clothes and she uh, and we stood out and then um she went into a seizure. It, 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 it's a hypoxic seizure. Um, that some people be just as they're having a characteristic went and she went into this seizure and we knew then that we, you know she was in big trouble so we get her out of the bathroom out into the um, bedroom and um, we started CPR on her we'd done about six minutes of CPR we got three shots into her and thankfully uh, that was enough to get her back at that stage you know that, that must have been terrifying for all concerned not least of all because you're a close family Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's not something you you'd be expecting at a wedding. Like twenty minutes beforehand, we were we were we were all having to crack downstairs at, at the um, yeah. the wedding. You know, um, like, you know, statistically, seventy percent of arrests happen in the home. You know, so um, to, to someone you know. So like, but for for to happen, my my little sister. You know, she's she's the youngest one of of seven. Um, you know, it was. It was frightening, to be honest with you, Mick. It was um, not something that I was expecting to, 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 to be in that night, you know, to be involved with that night. Now, you, you were obviously there quicker than the ambulance. So so wh- where did you get the defibrillator to give her the electric shocks? So I'm an off-duty first responder as well with the ambulance service. Uh, so I, I had the defibrillator in the car, but um, the crew that got there, uh, they saw the crew were there when... Ethna went into oh yeah, because because time had passed on a little bit, yeah. Time had passed on a little bit. Yeah. It wasn't the case of I got there and she went. She arrested. There was there was uh, twenty minutes or so uh, before she she went into cardiac arrest. So we so we knew um, we'd done an ECG on her and we could see that she was um, uh, having an, uh, car, uh, um, a heart attack at the time. So you know, and then that developed into a cardiac arrest. So that 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 time limit was very short, but the the ambulance crew was actually there at the time. You know. Okay, so uh, by now you're you're administering the CPR and the electric shocks. Uh, at what stage is the time right? Ambulance hospital now. Um, well, I mean, as soon as we saw what was happening in the ECG, as soon as we, as soon as I laid eyes on her, I knew we were going to Cork. We were this all happened down in Yall in the um, the Walter Rally in Yall. So like, as soon as I knew her, and and the decision was made to, to call an ambulance, we knew we were going to Cork. You know, so all this was being um, put in place. As as everything was happening, there was a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes as well. You know, um, like the the all fire crew, uh, the the, the all fire um, brigade, they were they were dispatched out to the scene as well. Like you know, as was there were um, there was paramedics coming from Cork City as well. You know, were you conscious so, at this time, Edna, or were you under? No, I I didn't know this was going on. I just remember up to um, the bathroom talking to Kira, changing my clothes. You know, and then I know nothing. Um, then I, when I when 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 I came around, um, 
I was in the stretcher. There's like Velcro on it. It's like a bag. Um, and into a room full of firemen. Okay, let's let's get the funny piece out of the way here. Uh, <laughs> what did you wake up thinking? Oh, I'm, at, I'm at a Chippendales concert. <laughs> Something along those lines. You I thought, like, you, oh, you, thought you were in heaven, didn't you? Uh, well, I won't lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, back to back to the serious stuff. Uh, you, you 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 get to see your H. Uh, now, is is it unusual, Kieran, for a family member to be allowed to travel, or were you recognised as a bona fide uh, first responder? You know, amb- ambulance capable. Oh, yeah. listen, all, all the lads. I know, I know all the lads. I'm in the job. I'm going on 16 years now in the job, so I, I know everyone who's at, who's at the scene from um, the ambulance or beside the things. You know. Yeah. So I mean, there, there's no hassle there. You know. Okay. So how, how did things progress after that? So so basically, what happened was. Um, so when it came around after we, we after we gave her the three shocks and the six minutes of CPR, she she came around again. Now she wasn't one hundred percent with it, which was fair enough. Um, so as I said, the all um, fire crew they got her down the stairs to the to the ambulance. Then more resources came from from the city, and it was uh, one of the advanced paramedics, Tiger Shea. He travelled up in the ambulance as well with uh, the, up the um, cat lab in the CUH, the, the PCI lab where she got stented. You know. Okay. And that went. That obviously went very well. How lucky do you consider yourself, Ethan, to have uh, have had Kieran there? I will be forever grateful. I'll, you know, I can't say enough how grateful I am, and that's for everyone. You know, it's. I suppose it's more special because of Kieran, and he's my brother. Um, but for every single person involved, the the fire crew. The paramedics, I just can't say enough about them. They're they're just they're out on their own. Um, they're they're like a tag team. They all work together, and they don't even have to speak to each other. It's like they automatically know what the next person needs. And so, so being married yourself, it all kept me very calm. Being married yourself, do, do you have a wry smile now looking back that you were the centre of attention at two weddings? <laughs> Well, I'm actually not a very um, attention kind of person. So, um, but I did enjoy it because of the people that, you yeah. know, were giving me the attention. You and, know, and, and once Fire everyone knew you, you were okay, did the, the, the celebrations continue in you all or what happened? Oh, to be, and again, to be fair to them, all these people and all this commotion going on, the bride and groom didn't find out until the next day. Oh, that's, With that's all nice. all this going that, on and they... They kept us kind of as discreet, I suppose, as they could. Yeah. But in fairness to them, they were outstanding. You might have been wondering where you were gone. <laughs> You're one. She left <laughs> the wedding early. <laughs> There's can, always one. Kieran, and it can, was can, me. <laughs> can, I, can I ask Kieran what, what's with the uh, teeth pain? That's a new one on me. Um, Jordy here. Um, I think you know Jordy there. I'll, um, I'll hand you off to him there, and he can ask answer a few questions there for you as well. Okay. Like. Hi, Hi, Joe. How's it going? Is is ha- having that kind of teeth pain indicative of some chest problems? Yeah, it can be, Mick. So what what often happens there is when someone gets chest pain, it radiates somewhere else, and generally people would feel it down their arm or up their jaw. So I'd imagine what happened here was that the referred pain from Etna's heart radiated into her jaw, but just went that little bit further into her teeth as well. 
Um, and we often find that, you know, people like getting it there now, you know, would shrug it off and say, geez, you know, I must have ate something bad or, yeah. you know, it's music. <clears throat> Excuse me, but, you know, like, these things can be quite serious and this is absolute testament to that, like, it, it was having a serious cardiac condition there um, which developed into a cardiac arrest. Are, are, we seeing, thought, Ger, are we seeing more heart attacks in younger people? Um, I suppose, look, statistically, not really, but I suppose we are actually ourselves, I suppose, from experience, seeing that it isn't always the more elderly of society that are suffering with cardiac arrest and chest pain. Now, it is certainly starting to affect people a lot, a lot younger. Um, and I mean, Etna there, you know, quite a young lady, you know, Karen's little sister, um, you know, and for, I suppose, for Karen there to have to switch between being the big brother, the paramedic... It's and a paramedic the big mode. Brother, you know, like, it must have been immensely hard for him. Yeah. Um, ab- uh, absolutely, for the rest of his life, he will he'd thank his lucky stars he didn't take on the, the role of an accountant or electrician or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he didn't either. Yeah, OK. S- sorry. Um, is is Kieran still there? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. They were saying he, he yeah. could he could have resparked her heart. He did, he did in some sort of way. Kieran. Yes, sir. We have a number of inquiries here. Are you available for weddings? <laughs> I am. I, I do uh, weddings and um, bar mitzvahs. Guys, we, I, I gotta leave it there. Thanks, Chair O.D. Community Engagement Manager with uh, NAS, Kieran and Ethna, brother and sister. Stronger bonds for the rest of your life now than you Absolutely. already have. And it's great so that all's well that ends well. Thank, Thank you. you very much. And we'll finish the programme today with my thanks to uh, the programme's producers. A lot of work went in today from Seamus Whelan, from Kevin Galvin and from Claire O'Connor. And with the polarisation that Ian Bailey uh, lived in West Cork with all his life. Let's leave you with these two texts that came in just after the interview uh, with Pat Murphy. Uh, one says, I don't know whether he carried out the murder or not, but I think the positive talk around Ian Bailey on the show this morning is awful. After all, he was an abuser. He beat his ex-partner Jules so badly that her neighbour didn't recognise her. He tore clumps out of, her, of hair out of her head and gave her black eyes. And the second text uh, says that that man, Pat Murphy, should not be speaking ill of the dead. That's the Little Prendeville Show. I'm Mick Mulcahy. Talk to you tomorrow after news at nine. When court talks, car people blow my mind. They talk to Neil Prendeville on Red FM.